Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is Labor Day, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape featuring songs about work. And can you believe that the summer is over? No, I, especially given we the inability to do anything this summer. I mean, still virtually, I, I know technically the lockdown has ended, but it never really ended. I mean, still there are a number of businesses and entertainment venues that are not open. Um, and the fact that summer still flew by is just, yeah, I find it unbelievable. I mean, we haven't been to work physically in what, it's almost like a, like a double summertime. It's oh, yeah. been almost 20 weeks, I think, since we've been to work physically. Right. And it, and it still feels like half the time the normal summer. I don't know. It's really, really bizarre. Yeah. Well, it, it's been since before spring break that, you know, our, our buildings uh, closed down and students began the e-learning. So, uh, you know, returning to school is just, uh, it, it's, it just feels entirely very strange. Yes. And, you know, and already we have, you know, this this four-day weekend and, and just the idea of Labor Day already having arrived. It, yeah, it's it's just... Crazy. Yeah, very much. Well, at least uh, one thing you could do in, in lockdown is listen to podcasts. Oh, true. And uh, people have been listening to podcasts and people have been listening to our podcast, which is really cool. Yes, thank you for that. And um, another review on, on social media I'd like to share from Jennifer. Uh, she said, uh, not just for Gen Xers. I love the concept and the delivery. I learned something new about my favorites, and I'm introduced to music as well. Highly recommend. So thank you, Jennifer. That's awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, Well, you know, we had a surprise delivery this week, too. I want to give a shout-out to Laura Lazaridis. She she actually created uh, two – she has an Etsy store uh, where she uh, makes and sells – you know, face masks, but she sent us two mixtape uh, face masks that that just blew me away. Yeah, these are awesome. Um, you know, they're it's the cloth mask material, but it has you know very similar to our logo. It has lots of blank cassette tapes kind of scattered about with different labels on them, like uh, '80s Mix and Motown and um, what's this one here, Southern Rock. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I I just can't can't thank her enough. So. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, along with the mask that she sent, she also um, gave me a business card that came with the mask that says, Friends Deserve Hip Masks too." Uh, and basically, it, it says that if any of our listeners wish to order face masks from her Etsy store. Now, the Etsy store is called um, Lazar Beam Yarns. L-A-Z-A-R-B-E-A-M-S-Y-A-R-N-S. So Lazar Beam Yarns. Uh, the card says that if any of our listeners wish to um, purchase a face mask from our Etsy store, that she will give our listeners a discount. Um, it, it You enter the code GENX10 and you'll get 10, 10% off of her face masks. And it, that, that code, Gen X10, is good until October 4th. So Look at that. We're, we, we actually have, we're like a promo now. We are. Right? Yeah, it's pretty. You know, t- tell, tell them Gen X uh, mixtape sent you. Yes, you get, please. Yeah, tell. You get uh, money. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, tell Laura that you heard it from 
you know, Alan and Dave. Well, yeah, that's great. That's... But, but no, these masks, they're fantastic. So looking forward to wearing it in, in school, actually. I, I um, figured when, when all this went down that that would eventually come to pass, that these um, masks would be a, another fashion accessory and an opportunity for people to express themselves like, like T-shirts. In fact, um, in our place of employment, you know, we can't necessarily get away with wearing T-shirts. Right. Um, but maybe we can get away with expressing ourselves a little bit more with some of the masks yeah. that we choose. Right. And I've, you know, before the school year began right there at the end uh, in the last few weeks, I started purchasing some, some masks that I really felt, you know, kind of... Uh, represented me and my interests so yeah it's it it is it's a fashion accessory you're absolutely right well hey let's uh let's talk about um the the topic um at hand which is labor day yes and labor day of course you know today most people think of as simply the the four day or the three day weekend right um that we get at the beginning of september um it was actually you know it's a federal holiday that's celebrated. Uh, it's celebrated all around the world. Actually, there's most countries have some form of Labor Day. Correct. Uh, many of them celebrate them in May, May first, or the beginning of May. Uh, we celebrate ours in, in September, of course. But it's to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contributions of laborers to the, the development and achievements to the United States. And um, you know, we don't have time to go into it. There's a whole podcast series here, but the amount of Strife, and we'll talk about it through some of the songs I know that I've chosen. Yeah, um, and working conditions and abuses that have taken place to the the, the, the men and, and women who built this country is, is egregious. And of course, labor unions formed to combat these types of abuses. And Labor Day is kind of that day where we're supposed to remember those things. Right. I mean, yeah, it's about picnics and the last swimming day maybe before fall sets in and barbecues and all that type. But I, I like that we're having this show because I think it's important, kind of like the 4th of July episode, that we don't lose sight of the actual reason that we have this three-day weekend. Agreed, yeah. My songs don't focus uh, in quite the same way. Um, I, I do have an element of that, but uh, a lot of my songs, too, are just songs about people who are looking forward to getting off work they're watching the clock they want out of the out of the uh the office some of them you know without question are songs about people who just really hate their jobs they want to quit but you know they of course can't because it's a means to an end you know the paycheck um but all of them all of them are work related and certainly i, I think my the songs on my list the majority of people are going to be very familiar with and, and be able to relate to um so um but yeah, I, did, I didn't go into quite as much detail, I think, as you did on the, you know, the unfair labor conditions and things of that nature. But it's, as I said, there's a place for it in a few Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and when I looked at my original list, I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a depressing two hours. That's why I didn't do it. And so I went back <laughs> and I kind of mixed in um, some other, maybe a little more lighthearted. Some, some are songs about people wanting to work but can't. Uh, yep. Some are songs about people wanting to work because it's volunteer and, and it's not necessarily for pay. So, you know, work can be a lot of different things. Correct. But I would say that my list is probably a little bit heavier on working conditions in the history of the labor movement than maybe yours. But that's fine. That's why we do this. Right. Yeah. No, that's I, why we do this. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've always set our own criteria and come in and explain the direction we went. So, um, yeah, well, it's going to be a nice mix then. I mean, it's, you know, because mine will provide, I think, some levity you know, in, in contrast. So yeah, it should be an interesting, uh, interesting mixtape when we're finished. And last uh, week was remote control. And do you think I remember who went first? <laughs> we, 
Um, every week. Every week we forget. I, I think I did. I think so. Okay, then I'll, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I, yeah I'll go, go right. for it. Yeah, I vaguely remember. I All right. could be wrong. Here we go, folks. Let's make a Labor Day mixtape. Okay. So this first song is not only a classic rock, part of the classic rock canon. I like to lead with these a lot. But it, 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 it has a lot to do with where we grew up as well. Hmm. In fact, this band attributes Cleveland and a specific DJ for the responsibility for their success, especially in the United States. We have a match. I know where you're going. You know where I'm going? I know exactly where you're well, going. Well, I decided this time I'm going to start with, with lyrics. So before I say the song, okay. I think you probably are on to me. I think it's number nine on my list. I get up at seven and go to work at nine. I got no time for living. I'm working all the time. It seems to me I could live my life a lot better than I think I am. I guess that's why they call me the working man. They call me the working man. Yep. By Rush. Rush, it is our first match of the day. Arguably the greatest power trio. I mean, I'm sure Cream is in the conversation, but you know, Cream was around, I think, four. I think we talked about them a couple episodes ago. They actually had four albums. Um, Rush has been around um, forever, and unfortunately, Neil Peart has passed away. And so Rush will no longer be um, the Rush that we know and, and love. But yeah, I mean, you talk about a force in, in music um, in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and into the aughts and, and uh, almost a present day. And it came down to, um, you know, they were looking for a record deal. They were shopping around some demos and some songs that they had recorded. And uh, Cleveland's WMMS DJ, Adonna Halper, yep. um, loved the song, and she began to play it. And, of course, Cleveland is, is a working-class city, especially back in the, in the late, early to you know, mid-'70s. Um, very much a working class steel town. We talked a little bit in the show, you know, early on earlier episodes about how Born to Run mm-hmm. uh, was also played by WMMS at um, five o'clock drive home at, at five o'clock, right? And was very responsible for for Springsteen's success in the U.S. So, you know, Cleveland's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, city because, of course, because of Alan Freed. But it continued to hold up that legacy in the way that it was responsible for discovering and promoting a lot of classic artists. Over over and over again. Very proud of that. Uh, In fact, uh, Rush is so appreciative, they dedicated their first two albums uh, to the DJ. And um, it's just, it's one of these songs now, here's the theme for me in this list. I've noticed that I have a couple really, really, really long songs. Yes. And I have a couple really, really, really short songs. So I guess they counterbalance. But this is... This clock's in at around seven and a half minutes, but it is worth it. Absolutely. I mean, just Alan Lifeson's guitar work on this is considered one of the greatest. And, and what gets me, too, this is this is like pre-record deal rush. I mean, this is the beginning. Neil Peart didn't even play on this. Yeah. This is before right. uh, he took over on the second. But th- if Rush was this great at the very beginning, you knew they were bound to oh, just be without question. amazing. Yes, yeah, came out in 1974 from their debut album, Rush.
Well, and you know, WMMS and Halper actually, this they were an AOR station, of course, so they looked for music that was not being played mainstream. But you know, the length of the song, well, you and I were DJs, you know, on, on the radio. You know, a seven and a half minute song is you know a godsend to a DJ because you can take the bathroom break and go it's get a smoke snack. break song. You can go take your <laughs> smoke, yeah. Um, but you know. Interestingly, immediately after Halper began to play the song, the radio station received calls from people asking when the new Led Zeppelin album was coming out. Oh, yeah, because you know early that? Rush is, yeah. is very Zeppelin so, sounding. So, yeah, they, they were surprised to learn that the vocalist was not Robert Plant, but Getty Lee and, you know, uh, listen to this new band Rush. Yeah, and thanks to the airplay, uh, yeah, the album picked up steam here in Cleveland and got the attention of Mercury Records, which signed the band and... You know, they re-released the album with their promotional might behind it. Um, it is one of the very few popular, very popular Rush songs that was not co-written by Pert, um, which, you know, as you said, he wasn't in the group yet. John Russi was their drummer at the time. Um, but like most of their songs on their debut album, you know, Working Man was written by Getty Lee and Alex Levison. Um, the two never had nine-to-five jobs, of course, like their protagonists, but they... They did put in their work, and they played any gig they could after forming the band while they were still in high school. Getty Lee has actually said that if there's one ultimate Rush song, it was Working Man, which was actually the very last song Rush ever played live, um, using it as the capper to their R40 live tour, which ended in 2015. Um, you know, On the tour, they actually played songs in reverse chronological order, and they started with their newest songs and worked backwards with the backdrops changing to reflect the era. Um, the band didn't announce it as a farewell tour, but they did say it would most likely be their last major tour of this magnitude. Neil Peart, he had, he had threatened retirement before, but this time he was more resolute. He was wearing down physically, and he wanted to spend more time with his young daughter. And, you know, when the show ended, he crossed that backline uh, meridian for the very first time. He joined Getty Lee and Alex Levison at the front of the stage to take a bow. And, of course, a year later... Pert developed brain cancer, which only his closest confidants knew until his death was announced, you know, January 10th, 2020, you know, three days after he had died. Um, and what a tragic loss for the, the rock. Yeah, know. yeah. And if you're not a Rush I, fan, you know, you, you may not know, not only was he an incredible uh, drummer with incredible, um, you know, legendary drum solos, but he wrote the lyrics. Yeah, he was the lyricist. For, for uh, yeah. Rush's tunes. And so they were very introspective, very philosophical. Yes. Sometimes almost... Um, Two two textbook. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't be. know how to say this clinically scientific. I mean, he yeah. had a very scientific mind did, yeah. in the way they approached things, and so you're jamming to a song that, like you say, sounds like Led Zeppelin, uh, or, or you know, especially in the early days. But then it's about you know free will. Yeah, <laughs> it's about the concept <laughs> of you know, do we really have a, a, a chance to court our own right. Uh, path in life or not <laughs> yeah well you know as a drummer he was my idol he, he was the reason I picked up my first set of drumsticks and you know a lot of it, he he makes everybody's top 10 top top five really uh, list of you know the best drummers in rock uh, rock music rock history for me and for for a number of people I know he was always number one I mean I would argue is the greatest greatest percussionist uh, rock and roll has ever known so all, All right. right, well, that's Working Man by Rush. And again, I don't know how we're going to sequence this, but I began with this song just because it just it's about waking up in the morning. Yep. It's that feeling of like, oh, my gosh, it's only Tuesday, and here we got to do this all over again. So I'm starting with Working Man. 
Okay. Yeah. Not our first match. I wasn't sure we'd have a lot of matches this time. Maybe, maybe we will. I don't know. My first song, I always tend to put the older songs uh, first on my list. For whatever reason, I sometimes go chronologically. It doesn't stay that way necessarily, but um, whenever I go for you know the golden oldies, I always seem to put them first, which is the case here because my first song is by Eddie Cochran, and it is Summertime Blues. Um yeah, you know, summertime blues. It, it was it was Cochran's breakthrough hit. He, you know, his previous singles did not do well. They stalled on the charts and they failed to crack the top forty. Um, but but this teenage anthem, I mean, it gave him the exposure he'd been waiting for, and it really established him as a star. Uh, Cochran's record label. This is funny to think about now, if you know who Cochran was. Uh, he, the label was trying to turn him into a crooning teen idol. And as such, Summertime Blues was supposed to be the B-side. We see that over and over again in the songs oh, yeah. that we oh, choose. Yeah. Um, because the, the release, the single release, was supposed to be a romantic number titled Love Again, um, which they thought would fit that, that teen idol persona. Love Again was actually written by 17-year-old Sharon Sheely, who then went on to become Cochran's girlfriend. <laughs> so little little incestuous there in terms of the you know the, the writing and the, the recording. But it was clear from from the beginning that the summertime blues was the biggest hit. So the record label reversed the sides of the forty five prior to its release. And then Sheely, she actually provided the hand claps on Summertime Blues. She she really wanted to do it, but had trouble getting the rhythm. Uh, apparently, according to legend, Cochran actually had to help her out by showing her how to clap, which, you know, it sounds funny to me, but then I've seen a lot of people, especially at concerts that, you know, are clapping at... You know, the rhythmically they, deprived. They, they are, oh, yeah. Rhythmically very rhythmically challenged. disabled. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Summertime Blues, though, big hit with Cochran's teenage fans who could relate to the lyrics about being held back by work, parents, and, and adult society in general. And and Cochran and his good friend, Jerry Capehart, they, they co-wrote the song after discussing popular summer anthems. Because, you know, they, they determined, as, as some of our episodes have shown, that there were, there were a plethora of, of songs about summer, but none at that time about the hardships of summer, especially faced by, by adolescents. So with that idea and the guitar lick from Cochran, they wrote the song in 45 minutes. Cochran, of course, he's another one of those, you know, greats that, that we lost to rock and roll heaven. He was 19 when he recorded the song. And then following its success, the label re-imaged him as a rebel with a guitar. But his legend was secured when he died just two years later. He was riding in the back of a taxi. And, you know, he was often compared to James Dean, who was 24 when he died in a car accident. And Sheely, the girlfriend who had written the B-side to Summertime Blues, uh, she was actually in the car when it crashed and killed Cochran in 1960. So, uh, but yeah, to me... You know, Summertime Blues, it's a song I've wanted to get on a few times. We never actually did just a, an Umbrella Summer episode this year. So, um, but when we decided Labor Day, I thought, you know, you know, I, the boss said, no no dice, son, you got to stay late. You know, you got to work late. I mean, it's just, it, it fits and, oh, I love the song. Summertime 
Yeah, a couple uh, Springsteen connections too. Um, when, there's a famous recording. If you're a Springsteen fan, you're well aware of it. Another Cleveland connection, and the Gora 1978 show. Uh-huh. Yes, it was broadcast on on the radio. I believe again WMMS. WMMS, yeah. And um, another, you know, milestone in, in his career. And he opens with a cover of Summertime Blues. And you can actually, you can actually, you know, you could get it with a, a bootleg of the show forever. But oh, you can yeah. actually legitimately buy Purchase it now it off now. of uh, yeah. Springsteen's site. Right. Um, but then uh, he pays homage to this song later on on Born in the USA mm-hmm. on a song that I could have included. I don't know if you did or not. I included a different Springsteen song. Spoiler alert but uh but working on the highway yep. i always felt was a direct homage to summertime blues with that little guitar that jangly guitar riff. oh yeah yeah it's definitely a rockabilly rhythm yeah. i um you know i i was gonna include it um work working on the highway and and then i thought about including factory by springsteen i i there, there's no springsteen on my list or in my alternates partially because i figured you'd have it and then partially too because i i just yeah. No, I get it. There, there were so many great There's songs. There's so many great songs, so. but I feel like if we're doing Labor Day and I'm, I'm focusing on the labor movement, right? if I don't choose Springsteen, because oh, yeah. <laughs> there's probably 10 songs I could have chosen. Absolutely. So I thought we might have had an artist um, face-off on that, but yeah. that'll be easy then. No, but yeah, I'm, Eddie Cochran, you know, just one of the greats. He doesn't get enough recognition. Um, you know, when people talk about the early greats that influenced, you know, musicians for, for decades after Cochran, I, if not for Cochran... McCartney and Lennon may not have become friends and joined forces because right. it was 20 Flight Rock that Paul McCartney played for Lennon that so you know so surprised and you know impressed Lennon that he he and Paul started to record together so yeah um, but no that's my number one great song yeah it's your turn a, this can be a fun um, mixtape here okay here's the next one I'm gonna, again I'm gonna start with lyrics this this episode see if you can guess that is unlike you I'm. I'm, I'm loving if, this. If you haven't learned anything about me yet after 35 years is that I get bored doing the same thing I, over I, and over again. So I will always yes. probably have some type of shtick for that particular episode just to kind of I'm digging it. shake things up a little you're, bit. You're the, you're the music first guy, so yeah. Here we go. And you won't make a dime on this gray granite mountain mine. Of dirt you're made and dirt you will return. So while we're living here, let's get one thing clear. There's plenty of men to die. Don't jump your turn. Any clue? I, and, and you're not going to probably know this. So I, I won't. I, you know, I... My, my, my favorite band of the last 15 years. December. Yes. Okay. That's why I, don't, that's why I didn't recognize it. It's a song so. called Rocks in the Box. Okay. Rock spelled R-O-X. I'm not sure why he did that. Uh, by the Decemberists, which came out in 2011 off the album uh, The King is Dead. And it's written about the, uh, the Butte, Montana Mining Company in the early 20th century. Who thinks to write a pop song? Well, actually, Colin Malloy, lead vocalist and, and primary uh, uh, songwriter, was actually planning on writing a musical about mining. Really? <laughs> so that's what's worse than writing a pop song about mining, is writing a musical. He was a theater major, and he he actually, you know, one of their concept albums has actually kind of been made into a, a musical uh, kind of a rock opera, but yeah, he, every so often he takes his turn at trying to write some type of actual stage musical, and yeah, this was one he he actually studied in college the um, the labor movement. It was one of his um, areas of concentration for social justice and you know the what labor went through. And he's, he lived in Montana. He's from Montana, and so he studied a, about this particular mining company, which was actually maybe the most progressive mining company in the early 19th century, where they had all sorts of rights and, and good wages, and then the company was bought out. 
by a different company that stripped all of that away. And these workers that were used to these protections and, these, and this living wage were kind of thrust into the same types of conditions that many laborers had to experience in this country and other, other countries as well. And so that's what he writes this song about. Bulkheads built of fallen brethren bones We all do what we can We endure our fellow man And we sing our songs to the head French kicks and moan And it's one, two, three On the wrong side of the lee What were you meant for? What were you meant for? And in seven, eight, nine You get your shuffle back in line if you ever make it to ten, you won't make it again And if you ever make it to ten, you won't make it again I didn't really know until recently that it was for a musical, but now I can totally envision this song being the opening uh, of an uh, opening number of a musical. Like, it, it would kind of work, actually. Right. And, you know, if you live in my house, you're going to hear the Decemberists quite a bit. And my my family aren't necessarily fans. But this song, for whatever reason, my daughter really gravitated towards. She, like, loved the song when hmm. she was in, like, middle school and high school. And now it kind of makes sense because she's a, a musical buff and she's a musical theater major. Right. So maybe that was the connection. Maybe it is more theatrical than I ever, I ever thought. But it really is. It's kind of a, a rhythmic, almost sing-songy. There's some Irish folk music in there as well. And it just has that that feeling of, you know, maybe, you, again, and, and this will come up more and more on this list, but of these workers singing this chant, you know, where they're counting and they're talking about. And just what, what a depressing line. Like, plenty of people are going to die. Don't, don't jump your turn because yours will come. And so it, it's that contrast of having these kind of really dark lyrics with kind of a cheery kind of cheery optimistic melody yeah that's rocks in the box okay well my song is actually going to follow really well i have two mining songs coming up and this is the first it's actually by lee dorsey it's called working in the coal mine there you go um and you know the song it sounds much like a jazz standard that could have been handed down from generation to generation of of the american old south um but it was actually written by alan toussaint in the early 1960s he was a pianist, a writer, a producer. He was part of the second wave of New Orleans jazz and blues culture. Um, in the 60s, he wrote and produced several hits for Lee Dorsey, including Ride Your Pony, Get Out of My Life, Woman, Everything I Do, Gonna Be Funky, and, and Holy Cow, um, if you know if any of our listeners are familiar with, with any of those. Uh, in 65, though, he wrote a song for Dorsey called Work, 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 which was appropriate since Dorsey, Dorsey loved working on cars as much as he loved making music. And he, he worked at a body shop, and he was almost always seen covered in grease. Um, so when he when he wrote it for a specific artist, Toussaint uh, would craft the song to the artist's personality, which he did on working in the coal mine. And mining, let, let's face it, it's very unpleasant work. You know, the incessant you know background vocals of the song, though, uh, working in a coal mine, oops, about to slip down, and, and Dorsey's enthusiastic delivery turned the song 
about a guy who is so tired from work that he can't even have fun on Saturday into just a campy romp. I mean, an artist who didn't appreciate and enjoy real work couldn't have pulled it off. But, But Dorsey was the right man for the job. And, you know, when he left the music business, he went back to bending Fenders full time. So um, the backing band on the track is the Meters, who were a mainstay of the New Orleans funk sound. Um, and a, this was recorded at JNM Studios in New Orleans, which was where just about every hit from that city was put on tape in the 50s and 60s. Coal Mine was one of the last hits recorded there, though, uh, as financial problems led to its demise a few years later. But, yeah, it was a it was a top 10 hit. It peaked at number eight. Um you know, and a popular cover of this song was actually recorded by Akron natives Devo in 1981. Uh, yes, yes, I, yeah. I remember uh, that, yes. Their, their version was on the soundtrack to the animated film Heavy Metal, which I, right. if we're talking <laughs> Gen X, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, their version only peaked at number 43. Uh, Devo was, you know, Devo had the one really big hit and that was about it but yeah working in the coal mine it is just a fun funky number um, and the lyrics they contrast with just the you know the enthusiastic and, and you know playful rhythm of the, of the song working in a coal mine going down 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 working in a coal mine about to step down working in a coal mine going down 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 working in a coal mine about to slip down five o'clock in the morning i'm already up and gone lord i'm so tired how long can this go on that i work it in a coal mine going down it's a fun one um but it is i mean you know there, there is that element of just the just being so tired so exhausted from your work and just you know the realization what am i doing this for and so but yeah on the heels of the semerists i you know as I said, there's another coal mining song coming, but well, there are yeah, and there there may be two more coal mining songs with possibility on my list. One okay. may be an alternate, and of course, I always think of songs that I forgot when when we're on air. Okay, right. and you, I, I was talking about how Rocks in the Box was for a musical, and you had mentioned earlier about um, women, and then I don't know somehow I just remember James Taylor actually was working on a musical about women working in the textile mills in New England. And when was this? Oh gosh, this was back in, in the eighties. I think 80s? he was working. I'm not sure if he ever completed it, but a couple of the songs appeared on uh, his albums, and there was one in particular song, and the name escapes me right now. But it is about these working women in the 19th century that that worked in these textile mills in New England. I thought, boy, that would have been a good one because we could have represented. Because we don't hear as much about women laborers during this time, because right, a yeah. lot of times they didn't participate. In that, uh, in, the, in the labor field, in that way, but they they did participate very much in the textile factory. So, well, I'll be honest. I, I love James Taylor. Uh, I love nineteen seventies James Taylor. Um, after after about eighty one, eighty two, I, I really I catch the occasional song from him, and I, I've liked what I've heard, but I I, I don't follow him and, and haven't. I mean, the nineteen seventies was for me that. That was the James Taylor. Sure. James Taylor. Yeah, I mean, era, he so. definitely became very adult contemporary. Very much in the eighties. Yeah. But I will include that song. I'll look it up and I'll include it okay. on the the mentioned yeah. songs. Look forward uh, to hearing it. Okay, my turn. Yes. Uh, this one again. We're going to have obvious ones that uh, people are going to expect. 
this is a song that I love, so I would put it on anyway, but we would be, we'd, we'd be committing malpractice if we didn't include this song. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay. Some days won't end and some days pass on by. I'll be working here forever, at least until I die. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm supposed to get a raise next week, and you know damn well I won't. Now that, I, I, I know those lyrics, but I... Working I'm for a, a living... Working for a living, working, taking what they're giving because I'm working for, for a living. Huey Lewis okay. in the yes, news. Thank you. I, wow. <laughs> I, I really had a senior moment there. I, I, I knew I knew the lyrics. So, Yes. Yeah. From 1982, uh, Picture This, which was their second or third album. And it, it, the biggest hit came from this album, Do, uh, Do You Believe in Love? This was right. like a secondary single that, that gained some traction. But, um, you know, other than being a straightforward song about the working man and, you know, just the trials and tribulations of living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, this actually had some di- a second meaning to the band because they, rec- after after a picture of this, they went out and they recorded sports, which of course, you know, was their oh, huge that was, yeah. breakthrough. But Chrysalis Records, their label at the time, was in financial difficulty. And they were really afraid to turn over the master tapes to the label and have the label go bankrupt and have some contract dispute. Right. And so they basically told their label, you need to get things straightened out. We're going to hold on to the master tapes and we're going to go on tour until you do. So Huey Lewis and the News, who still, despite having a couple of hits, were not household names. Yep. So they basically went on tour for, I don't know, close to a year, I think, playing small clubs six nights a week, staying in little hotel rooms across the country. They call it the Working for a Living Tour, where they really did work their butts off. Hmm in these small clubs and played all the songs on sports that would become big hits. And it was, of course, great for the band, great for the chemistry of the band, great. It was a great experience for them, but it was a very blue-collar experience that they hadn't expected. They expected to, you know, for sports to come out, they hoped to be successful, they hoped to be playing big arenas, but they went through this stage um, in their career. And so it, it had a second meaning for them. I thought about using it, which, given you know, then I have no excuse for <laughs> not knowing the lyrics. Uh, I actually have Huey Lewis as an alternate, but a different song. Oh, okay. Um, which I now I you know I probably won't get to it anyway. But yeah, I have a couple of days off. Oh yeah, as yeah, an alternate, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is you know right right in the same vein. It came later in their career, um, but. Yeah, how did I not know that? I'm, this song, I'm slipping. <laughs> hit a second time, by the way. Twice. Twice. It hit in 2007 when it was covered by Garth Brooks and Huey Lewis as a country duet. I have never heard that. It didn't hit the Billboard Hot 100, but it hit the country chart. I think it went to 20 something in the country charts huh. in 2007. So it had a second life there with with Garth and, and Huey. That'd be 
That'd be fun to hear. Um, yeah, poor Huey. You know, I, you know he's he's losing his hearing. Is he? Yeah, he uh, he had to cancel a number of uh, their their concerts this year, which in the end, of course, made no difference. Made no difference. Right. Um, but but they canceled very very early um, uh, because yeah, he, he's losing his hearing and he's trying to do what he can to to save it because he's he's having a hard time singing on stage because he can't right. he can't hear um which is really just kind of tragic same thing happened to frankie valley yeah um you know the, i think of uh december 1963 oh what a night and it, it's still credited as frankie valley in the four seasons but valley only sings like three lines in the song the, right. the, the entire song is covered you know by by others um but yeah for a musician alert to lose their their hearing oh sure and, and Huey, he was one of the greats, man. And well, it, again, like a lot of the 80s bands, there were such anomalies because there wasn't, I didn't feel like there was that one movement. Like if you look at all the other decades of rock and roll, you had kind of the right. the style that everybody kind of flocked to and everybody imitated. But in the 80s, when you have Prince and Michael Jackson and Madonna and Cyndi Lauper and Huey Lewis and the News and Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, there, there's, there's very little oh, yeah. in it, common with all of those different styles and genres. And Huey Lewis at the time, I mean, and they were older. Like, oh, they were yes. The, you know, they weren't young in their early twenties. They were, I think, they were probably in the early or late thirties, if I'm not mistaken, during the, the yeah, time the, period was, that they, I described. They were our parents' age. And and so the whole hip to be square kind of thing um, made sense because yeah. they really were kind of this square. Oh, they were band. They weren't rock and roll in the sense of the image of rock and roll, but they played great kind of blues based pop songs. Yeah. Well, and they were very heavily influenced by. 1950s, oh, 1960s yes. oh, music. Yeah, definitely. You, you saw it, you know, again. And Tower again. of Power was their horn section, so right. they just were a great live. Well, and I, you could argue, you know, the power of love is as iconic as Back to the Future. Oh, yes. You know, it's yep. it, it probably one of the, probably, I would argue, maybe the greatest, you know, soundtrack number of, of the 1980s. Um, so, yeah, it, it, they were just a band that I always loved. I've seen them in concert. I, they've been on a good show. But, yeah, they, they are not, you know, they're not. They're not young. <laughs> right. Right. They. They are. Uh, That's what I love about it. I mean, I just don't feel like today. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, maybe an established artist um, could still put out music and be successful in their late 30s, early 40s. But I feel like an, a new band now, and in the indie scene, of course, that that could oh, happen. Indie coffee house. Yeah. Um, but I don't see a, an artist, no matter what genre. Uh, all of a sudden, just having a debut album or a band having a debut album right. uh, when they're much older. How much of that do you think, I mean, when you talk about the, the diversity of the 80s, how much of that do you think was really MTV influenced? I think that had a big It could be, although I, was there a video for Do You Believe in Love? I don't even remember a video for that particular, because they had great videos for their sports, oh, um, sports. singles. Yeah, I, and I know they. I think they might have had a video for Working for a Living, but I don't feel like they were ever in heavy rotation until sports. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I do remember the video for Working for a Living. Okay. Uh, whether or not, do you do you believe in love had to have a video? You would think it so. It had to. Because that I, was 82. But, but I, I, I can't, I can't like envision it, but uh, we'll, we'll look it up here shortly. It just I, as a quick personal. I, I, I got to know. So. Aside to, um, I, I made mixtapes for my wife all throughout our courtship, which was about six years. And um, I probably made 20 mixtapes. And I, I labeled them volume one, volume two, volume three, you know, and did all the crazy OCD stuff that we described yeah, in our intro I, episode. I, I did the same. Um, the very first song on the very first volume was Do You Believe in Love by Hugh Lewis in the News. So that song's special. Yeah, they What's had that? a video. They did have a video they for Do You Believe in Love? Okay, I just yeah. never saw it. Um, yeah, I, I, 
I'm curious to watch this later because I have no memory of the video. It's probably more of like a live setup. Yeah, right. Probably just the Lip you know, singing with in the front band. Of the, right. The mic. It wasn't yeah. conceptual. No. All right. Here Lewis in the News was my third choice. Great choice. And like I said, I, I thought about it and ended up going a couple of days off instead on my alternates, but I won't get to it. No. Um, Working for a Living was one that came to mind right away when we mentioned it? doing Labor Day. Yeah. I am. Um, for me, too, really. I, that's why I kind of ashamed that the lyrics escaped i'm getting old it's getting i used to be like right there with with lyrics and and you know it don't feel bad i'm not by the way i'm not setting these up to make you look like you can't oh, I, no not, i don't i don't i didn't interpret it that way i, I guarantee just, you if you did the same i would get none of them correct right. so no it, it was just you know in my younger years i could out shazam shazam so but not so anymore all right well, my next one um is another just it's a fun um, you know, playful song. It's called Bang the Drum All Day. And we have a match. We, we have a match. Yeah, Play the Drum All Day. Which was a song that or I bang, loved. Bang, bang the Drum All Day, rather. A song that I loved until it was just became overused oh, yeah. in every place in pop culture. Now I can barely listen to it. But I love Todd Rundgren, and it's a great song. Yeah. Um, well, you know, he... Rundgren, I mean, he is a distinguished songwriter, musician, composer, but but this novelty romp is his most played song. So yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. Um, but you know, when asked how he how he feels about uh, just the broad swath of the population knowing him only for this song, um, you know, Rundgren has said that he he loves that he has written a song that is so well known to a broad segment of the population. But you know, he always finds it amusing that most people actually have no idea how or why they know this song. Most people have no memory of hearing it for that first time. Um, he's, he's actually likened it to, to singing Happy Birthday, you know, a song we all know, but, you know, can't remember the, when we first heard it. Well, it's and, been, like, like Shrek used it early on, uh, right. on their DVD release. Several sports stadiums use it for touchdown celebrations. Right. Yeah, it, it's so it just it, uh, um, I believe it was um, Carnival Cruise Line paid a ton of money oh, yes. for yeah. them to use for the it commercial. in their commercials. So he's right. It, it's, it's permeated different cracks of society, right. but it may be hard for some people. Now, I, I do remember watching him perform this live on MTV early on, before I even knew who Todd Rundgren was. Hmm. And I remember just thinking, yeah, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a cool tune. And I've seen him live twice. I don't know that he played it either time that I saw him live. Well, and, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that he didn't. He, he really has said that, um, you know, he hates playing it really especially live he said that you know it's it's just a lot of screaming and flailing around adding that when he performs the song he feels like ape-like is how he's described it he said his his hands get tired his ears get tired but the audience loves it i mean it's it is his most requested song time and again He cited it 
is the most important song of his career. He said he made so much money from it, you know, that he never, if he never has another hit record on the radio again, that song will be going strong long after he dies. And um, it's such a simple song. It, it really is. Yeah, it's you know, um, he has said that he believes the song became popular, really popular, solely because of the line about banging on the boss's head. Yeah, yeah. It, Take this. Uh, every day when I get home from work, feel so frustrated. The boss is a jerk. I get my sticks and go out to the shed, and I pound on that drum like it's the boss's, boss's head. Yeah, that's the line. He says that, you know, that he thinks that's the line that actually has has made this, you know, the cultural phenomenon that it is. And he's admitted too that he himself can relate to the desire to abuse your boss, <laughs> and said that he's fairly certain everyone does. Right. Um, so. Yeah, bang the drum all day, so nether, nether match. And, and, okay. and just as a side note, um, Rundgren is a multi-instrumentalist. Okay, how do I say that? A multi-instrumentalist. Yes. There we go. Uh, and played all of the instruments on this track. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Rundgren, not only is he a singer-songwriter of his own right, but it, one of the greatest producers of the Gen X era, too, has produced so many um, great albums. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's just a studio whiz. He was one of the first to really adopt some of the advanced overdubbing techniques before mm-hmm. digital. Yeah, yeah. Todd Rundgren. Rock and roll wouldn't be the same without him. He's still not in the rock hall. No. Yeah, you want to talk about rock snubs? Rock yeah. But that was 83, by the way, 1983. Yes. Um, from the ever-popular Tortured Artist Effect album. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that one I'll have to find a replacement for when I get along that to that place okay so I, I told you i'm trying to go back and forth between kind of fun work songs and maybe a little bit heavier so right my last one was a little more fun working for a living now we're going to go to a different song that's a little bit heavier the glass is cut the bottle run dry our love runs cold in the caverns of the night we're wounded by fear injured in doubt i can't lose myself i can't live without you oh boy another one I, I know. It was supposed to be the second single off of the Joshua Tree, Red Hill Mining Town. Okay, yes. It would be interesting to see if this would have been released as a single instead of, like, I still what I'm looking for was the unlikely single as it is because like it's a gospel it, yeah, tune. It really is. Again, I mean, when what other time than the 80s would, I still haven't found what I'm looking for be a hit. Uh, but this song, you know, it's kind of a catchy tune for being as serious of a song. Yeah. As it is, um, yeah, it is. I well, you know, the Joshua, the Joshua Tree is is you know top five greatest albums of of the nineteen eighties, and but the U two has always remained so polarizing. I mean, there there are people that swear that they are the greatest you know rock band that you know of, of you know the the eighties forward, and then you have those that just refuse to listen to them and think they're overhyped. Um, but but the Joshua Tree, a lot of those singles. Really, in in retrospect, you know they they're just they're so unconventional. Yeah, with or without you, with yeah, without the streets you, have no name. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm trying to think what else was released uh, from that LP. Those, those are that, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those are the those big, are the two, the big yeah. singles. But but yeah, they're. I mean, it's not like you two today. I mean, Vertigo, you know, makes perfect sense on the charts. But but you know, and even Octung Baby, when when you get to One in Mysterious Ways, I mean, those right. those had that funky groove. But the Joshua Tree was so low key. And, you know, the long fade-ins and just, it's, yeah, it was unlike anything else on the radio. Well, my kids tell me millennials um, hate him simply because of the uh, iPod oh, stunt. That would make sense. And I'm told that they weren't even that upset by the fact that the, the new U2 album at the time appeared 
on their iPods or their iPhones, but it was the fact that you couldn't delete it from your iTunes library. That's what really bothered them, that, that it was fine that it was there, they get that, but you couldn't for a while. Now eventually they made it right, so you could delete yeah. it, and that was the big thing. Anyway, this song is about the National Union of Mine Workers strike in Great Britain in 1984, which of course we were never familiar with because, well, we were kids at the time and didn't watch the news and it didn't take place in the United States. But basically the National Coal Board's campaign, and this is another coal song, uh, had a campaign under under Maggie Thatcher and, and her Department of Labor to shut down a lot of the coal mines that weren't as profitable. And these towns were built around these coal mines, you know, these, pe- that was these people's livelihood, you know? Right. And so the, the feeling was you can't just go in and say, well, yep, this one isn't making as much money. It's probably easier just to cut it loose. And now you had all of these families that, that had nowhere to turn. They had no economic opportunity. Now, Bono was criticized because the song was not specific enough. People wanted him to take more of a political stance in the lyrics, but you can tell from what I read, and like all Bono's lyrics, they're pretty vague and they can be interpreted in a lot of ways. But he wanted to focus on the relationships and the families being torn apart. Uh, the, the the father and son, they may have worked together in the mines and, and, the, and the families, the, the, the children that weren't being fed or you know, we're facing a, a bleak future because of the lack of economic opportunity. So I, I like the song a lot. Um, when it was recorded, Bono was never happy with the with the vocals. The horn section, they kind of they kind of recorded it hastily and the horn section was out of tune. So um, they ended up dropping the horns and adding synthesizer. If you get an opportunity, and I'll put this on our, our playlist as well, to listen to the re-release of the Joshua Tree, the anniversary dis- edition, Steve Lillywhite goes back and remasters it with the horn section. And even though it's still out of tune, he brings it up to the surface, and it's a completely different song. Right. In fact, Bono re-records um, the vocal performance, too. And they're almost comp- two completely different. It's not, I shouldn't say that, but they're they're very very different. There aren't minor differences. I'm still going to stick with the original. Okay. But I'm going to put the other one, the alternate, on the yeah, on no. the playlist. Well, and yeah, it, it's 
yeah, not not a significant difference, but but yeah, it is. It's there. You can you can definitely see the you know the the edits and the additions. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to throw it in. I'm going out of order on my list, but it was coming up. So let's keep it in the coal mines, and I'm going to give you 16 tons. And we have a match on my alternate. On your alternate. So okay. you're good with this one. 16 tons, Tennessee Ernie Ford. Um, it was written in 1947. Uh, by country and western guitarist and songwriter Merle Travis. Um, It's based on the experiences of Travis's coal mining family. Uh, His brother, John Travis, actually wrote him a letter about the death of Ernie Pyle. Pyle uh, was a war correspondent who had just been killed covering combat. And John Travis, he likened Pyle's job to that of a coal miner, and he wrote his brother uh, saying, it's like working in the coal mines. You, You load 16 tons, and what do you get? another day older and deeper in debt. And and Merle was so taken by his brother's words that he actually used them in, in the song. He let his brother kind of write, uh, uh, you know, the, the core of the song. Um, he incorporated them, and, and, you know, he wrote the rest of the song from that starting point. But Merle also remembered something his father, also a coal miner, uh, once said about the practice of paying miners in scrip. You know what script was? No. You familiar with that? Script was script were credit vouchers. Um, oh, you, the, they had a company store and yeah, you could buy your they goods. They had a company store. So you didn't and, get cash. Right. You got which these. Which meant that you could only purchase. Shrewd bucks. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that was your payday. You know, you could you got vouchers to purchase things at the company owned general store and nowhere else, you know. Right. Um, so uh, he once overheard his father uh, telling a neighbor, I can't afford to die. I owe my soul to the general store. And, you know, his father's words were then also included in the lyrics. Well, well, Tennessee Ernie Ford, he was, uh, he had a five-day-a-week daytime show, which, which kept him so busy that he actually fell behind with his recording com- commitments for Capitol Records. And Capitol told him that he would soon be in breach of contract if he didn't record soon. So Ford began thumbing through songbooks looking for music. Um, you know, he, he found Merle Travis's songbook, and the song's 16 tons, and, you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford's grandfather and uncle had also mined coal. It was it was part of his family's history. Uh, so he immediately took a liking to the song, and Capitol's ultimatum was fast approaching, so Ford went with 16 tons and recorded it with a six-piece band. And, you know, as for the famous finger snaps, uh, producer Lee Gillette asked Ford from the control booth, what tempo do you want this in? And Ford snapped his fingers to show him, and Gillette said, Leave that in. And so Ford snaps his way through the song. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. 
St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. It became the fastest selling single in Capitol Records history. At, at that time, of I course. believe it climbed up the country charts first yeah. and then climbed and then up climbed, the pop charts. Yes. At which, you know, on the pop charts, you know, being the fastest selling single on the pop charts. At, at, you know, for the for the label at that time, that is impressive because you have to remember Sinatra was on the label's roster. Um, you know, the song it, it just climbed the chart. It eventually hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, hit number one on the country and western charts, and you know, it's a song that has been used in popular culture again. And oh, again. yeah, it's just over the last sixty years has been covered by uh, a ton of people. And by the way, was also a B side. Yes. It was a B-side. So how many times are we going to talk about a song where they, they misjudged? Um, yeah, in fact, and, and this also has kind of a Gen X connection because the first time I ever heard the song was in a, an 80s movie. That Joe, I, Joe versus Joe Volcano. versus the Volcano, yeah. which I absolutely hated. I should go back and watch that. I remember the only time I think I saw it with you. And I, I just remember, I mean, I usually can find something in any movie that I like. I just remember that and Hudson Hawk were the two movies that I just hated. And <laughs> I should go back. Hawk. Maybe I just oh, didn't. Man. Maybe I just didn't get Joe versus Volcano. Maybe it was over my head at the time. I have not seen it since you and I saw it together. Then, so we're talking forty plus years since I probably saw it last. Yeah, I'll th- give it another chance. But I remember that's the only thing I remember about the movie is there was this montage where I think people were all getting ready to go to work, and it was kind of showing right. the suburbs as being this monotonous. You know, monochromic type deal with this song playing. Yeah, in the background. Well, and, you know, it's Tom Hanks who very rarely chooses movies poorly, and Meg Ryan was at her peak at the time. Right. You know, but yeah, it. it I, I, you know, it'd be interesting to go back and see it again. Now, Hudson Hawk was a horrible movie, but for me, it's one of those that that it was so bad it was good. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to go back and watch yeah, that again. That too, one I, I enjoyed. I still enjoy it, but yeah, it is. It's a horrible movie, but you know, there, there's just there's the, this kitschy, you know, campy presence to it, and you know, I mean, just the fact, you know, that you know, as as they're you know committing their their crimes, they sing, they have a time to the letter. To, to Bing Crosby swinging on a star. I mean, I always found that, you know, really amusing. But um, no, 16 tons. Yeah, so. All right. That's one I'll take off my alternates list. Okay, here we go for the next one, right? Yes. Make me an offer I can't refuse. Make me respectable, man. This is my last time in the unemployment line. So like it or not, I'll take those long nights, impossible odds. Keeping my back to the wall it takes all that to just be what I am. Well, I'm going to be a blue-collar man. Mm-hmm. Sticks. Yep. Blue-collar man, long nights from 1978's Pieces of Eight. Great song. And what I love, and this is a Tommy Shaw, I think we've talked about in the past on this show, You know, Tommy Shaw and Dennis Young were the primary writers. Dennis Young maybe a little more of the pop side, and Tommy Shaw a little more of the rock side. And Tommy Shaw was just really all about writing very accessible songs that people enjoyed to listen to. They were good, too, but he wasn't much about metaphor, and this song is about as straightforward as you can possibly get. Oh, yes. Lyrically, it was inspired by a friend of his who um, lost his job. It was a laborer, had lost his job, and was embarrassed by the fact that he had to go on to government assistance, and he had to wait into the unemployment line. He was married, he had a family, and he just felt like he 
you know, I don't know if he was actually ridiculed, but at least he felt that way. He felt like he couldn't provide for his family. So when I mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, uh, I have some songs about people wanting to work. This is the example of that song. This isn't take my job and shove it. This is like, please give me a job. I don't want a handout. I will do anything. I'll work those long nights because that's what I am. That's my character. Musically, <laughs> it was inspired by a boat. Really? Yeah. Now that I didn't know. Yeah, uh, apparently um, Sticks had finished a tour and they kind of wanted to blow out some steam. So uh, Tommy Shaw and some of his friends chartered a deep sea fishing trip and they were out and there may have been some illicit substances involved and they might have been kind of vegging out a little bit. And the boat was making a certain type of cadence that he just, it stuck in his brain. And so when he got home from the fishing trip, and he, you know, fired up the guitar and, and, and wrote, um, basically wrote the guitar part of the song to the sound that the boat was making. <laughs> so, just love that story. But yeah, this is, uh, you, you don't get any more straightforward than these lyrics. And, but, but I like it because it's still about, it's about that pride of working. It's about um, the fact that so many people, especially now where we are in our country, um, we're taking unemployment because you cannot find that job that you, or maybe you're not trained for that job. There are right. jobs out there, but there are. but it's difficult to, you know, maybe find that match with what you're trained to do. And so I get that, you know, and I think that's part of the American spirit is this idea of uh, we don't want handouts. We want to work. And of course, we need that safety net and that's important. And so his friend obviously was able to get by and eventually get a job, but he wrote this uh, for him. not know the history i mean i i know the song of course um huge sticks fan uh another band that's been snubbed by the rock hall they should have made it in a while ago but um yeah no i thank you for the the history lesson i i, 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 I really didn't know much about it I'm, i tend to lean more toward the young than shaw so i don't and know i'm more shaw i've seen the shaw incarnation of, of sticks i've seen the young and my wife has seen the de young yeah, i've seen the young version um all right i know it's a great song um all right, so my next one, it, it originally was a blues uh, song. I was uh, blues guitarist Jimmy Reed. He, he first recorded the song. It's titled Big Boss Man uh, for his 1960 album, Found Love. And in Reed's hands, the song was an up-tempo 12-bar blues shuffle that featured one of his most influential grooves of all time. Um, the song is actually credited to Jimmy Reed's manager, Al Smith, and, and VJ Records staff writer, 
Luther Dixon. So it was one of the very few Reed hits that was written by someone other than Reed and his wife. They, they generally wrote together and Reed's music was his own. Um, backing Reed, you know, you had, um, well, Reed, he sang, he played harmonica, he played guitar, and his wife, Mama Reed, was on vocals. Lee Baker and Lefty Bates were on guitars, Willie Dixon on bass, Earl Phillips on drums. If you're a blues fan, those names, you know, resonate with you. You know, you know who I'm, I'm naming there. Um, but Reed's recording uh, was released as a single in 61, and it reached number 13 on Billboard's R&B chart. Um, it has since been interpreted and recorded by a variety of artists. Elvis Presley climbed the charts with it, as did B.B. King and, and Albert King, both Kings, uh, you know, scored with it. Uh, they, they all had record chart successes with the song, and a very you know, the bluesy number was very famously uh, a concert staple and a jam session for the Grateful Dead. Uh, they played it live uh, through the 60s into the mid-70s. It still made an appearance uh, as late as 95 in, in, you know, in Dead concerts. But my favorite recording is actually by Nancy Sinatra. Uh, it's, it's from her 1969 album, Nancy. And Sinatra, you know, she seldom worked in the R&B genre. Yet this is, I, I swear, this is one of her very best recordings. Her, her version of the song, folks, it shines in every possible way. It has a percussive groove that is punctuated with brass and harmonica, tinkling ivories. I mean, the piano work is, is brilliant. And there's a surprising and deep choral response. And the guitar solo, it, it just soars. And on each listen, I wonder if anyone has really ever done basic R&B this elaborately, um, we can talk cultural appropriation, of course. This is not an African-American singer. Nancy Sinatra is as white <laughs> as it gets. But I mean, her version is just stellar. And what most sets her cover apart from the rest, though, is the way she transforms the lyric with her sultry voice. I mean, in Reed's original, the song is about an exhausted, abused, and overworked laborer and his thoughts of finding a new job. You know, But when she sings the lyrics... You got me working, boss man, working around the clock. I need a drink. I need me a drink of water, but you just won't let me stop. She entirely upends our expectations because it becomes a seductive metaphor that just oozes with intoxicating sexuality. Um, even more when she slips into a soft, near-spoken lyric. And there's also, she, she provides a naughty giggle when she sings the line, You ain't big, just tall, that's all which really drives home the point that she isn't equating big here with overall physical stature. So he, she really, she, without, same lyrics, but she changes, you know, the, the, the meaning, you know, just does a 180 with it. You know, what was first a song about an emasculated man becomes a suggestive, just delightful gender, gender reversal by, by Nancy Sinatra. It's the best song on the album, and one I, I had to include here on our mixtape, even though I'm fairly certain a majority of people have not heard it. Big boss man mm. Can't you hear me? When I call Big Boss Man mm -hmm. 
Can't you hear me when I call? All right, so next one for me. Uh, okay, so I was playing through the playlist this morning as I was getting ready, and I just cannot stop thinking about Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze when yep. this song comes on yep. because it became uh, the background for a sketch uh, on SNL. We have a match. Um, everyone's, everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody wants a little romance. Everybody's going off the deep end. Everyone needs a second chance. Oh, you want a piece of my heart? You better start from the start. Great rhyme. (laughs) You want to be in the show? Come on, baby. Let's go. Not exactly Bill Shakespeare there, but... No. But a Gen X staple. Do you want me to actually identify that one for you? That I can do. Can you? Yeah, good, (laughs) good, good. Working for the weekend, which is a match. I have it on my list, so... From 1981, from 1981's Get Lucky by Loverboy. Yes. uh, Not only was that song iconic, but I remember the record cover was quite iconic. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if it was Mike Reno's butt or some other standard model, but, uh, you know, somebody with tight leather pants and uh, their, their fingers were crossed behind their back. And uh, I just remember as a kid, and I was fairly young at the time, so I'm probably nine years old at the time, seeing it prominently displayed in record stores, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, you don't get more, more Gen X, but that then became, it, it had a whole different meaning, of course, after that sketch, which may be oh, one yeah, of the more, yeah. uh, and if you haven't seen it, folks, uh, and, and if you're younger and, and haven't watched some of the classic <laughs> SNL stuff of the of the 80s um, and and early 90s, you need to go check out Chris Farley. Just type in Chris Farley, Patrick Swayze, Chippendales. Yep, you'll you'll find it. Uh, It's it's quite a sight. One of the greatest sketches in SNL history, really. So, you know, co-writer Paul Dean was inspired to to write this song when he was at the beach. And it was during the week, work week, and he was just kind of hanging out on the beach wondering where everybody was. I think he wanted to hang out and party. And then he realized it was like a, Tuesday morning or something, and you realize, well, that's because people work for a living, right? I mean, if you're in a band, you're working in the evenings, you're working at night, you're sleeping in, you have your days off. And so um, he kind of just thought, yeah, everyone's kind of just, you know, waiting for that weekend. And and that's where the idea for working uh, for the weekend came up. Um, And it just became, at the time he wrote this, I mean, I think this was their second album. They were, no, again, not big names. They were still playing small clubs. But after they wrote this song and they moved it to the beginning of their set, you know, a lot of times bands, you kind of have a warm up period. Right. Especially if you're not very well known and people are just there to drink and hang out and dance. And it takes a while until the, the, the night kind of takes off and people begin to pay attention to the music and dance. But they found out when they started their set with this song, people yep. right away just, just yeah. jumped in and they knew they had a hit.
they were they were a young band i mean they this was only their third single they had turn me loose and the kid is hot tonight which came before but um yeah i it just you know with slick guitars and a new wave synth sound and, and a big hook i mean it, it's a party song it it, it, get, it got a lot of airplay too i mean it was you know energetic but it was accessible and you know the two uh combined with lyrics uh, about the nightlife to make an extremely marketable song it, it would you know and it has it's been used in a variety of movies and uh television shows since i've got nothing to add i mean everything that was in my notes you just you just covered so yeah but, again not the not the greatest lyric no and it's masterpiece <laughs> and, and realistically i mean it's you know it's not a song that has any great you know history or you know actual strong trivia too and it's just it's just a song that defines the 80s i mean it you know it, it was everywhere and if you grew up in the 80s as we did i mean you knew that song you loved that song i mean it was just it, it was infectious and it was just it's just a, a, a good pop song is a good yeah, pop song absolutely so nope that is yet another match so three so far we have we have more than i thought we would um given how we defined our criteria at the start so um, i told you i'd, I'd intermix serious right, songs with, yeah. with, with fun so we had unemployment now we have working for the weekend yep now it works all right well my next song uh this is the first time shame on me that i've actually included him in my top 10 songs for the the episode this must be sam this Cook. is sam Cook. chain gang yes chain gang is my next song which by, um, by the way i didn't even consider because i knew you would have it oh yeah this this time there was there i was going to take your sam cook fan card away from you if you didn't finally <laughs> include sam Cook. yeah no this one was a it was just a given i mean it, it, it just you know it was the first song i wrote down actually um yeah inspiration it, it comes in all forms and and you know, sometimes from the unlikeliest of places, and, and that's the case for Chain Gang. Um, in 1959, while Sam Cooke uh, was on tour, he was traveling through the South with his brother Charles, uh, their tour bus happened upon a chain gang of prisoners from the Georgia State Prison. This was just outside Reedsville on, on Highway 147. Uh, Cook and his brother, they felt sorry for the prisoners, so they ordered the bus driver to pull over and they, they you know, got off the bus and they went over, they introduced themselves and after some conversation and shaking a few hands, uh, the two of them passed out cartons of cigarettes to the prisoners before reboarding the tour bus to continue their trip. Um, and, and apparently the, you know, the, the officers, they, they, they just let it happen. That's I mean, a lot of currency. That yeah, goes a long way. In oh prison. yeah. But I mean, if you know the South of the, you know, if you know the South of 1959, I just the story itself is just an anomaly that they would allow two black men to approach prisoners on a chain gang and well here's the question know. and you know way more about Sam Cooke was was he an established icon at the time because you're right African American musicians were not treated well but I think some of the one some he, of the ones that were icons yeah. were treated differently he um, he was known I mean he he did have uh, a few hits at this time but he had not really peaked yet. Um, Oh, his, he only had one number one hit in all of his career, and that was You Send Me, which was 1957, which was his first single. So, I mean, everyone knew You Send Me. Um, you know, it, it became a staple. It, it, it was often likened to Chances Are by Johnny Mathis because they had that very similar vocal, you know, that, that smooth vocal and, and whatnot. But, but he had charted, you know, some, some modest hits, you know, in between. Um, Wonderful World, um, you know, then came out. That was his second significant hit on Billboard. 
Um, so he was known, but he wasn't. He wasn't a little Richard. He wasn't a Fats Domino. Not not at this point. Um, but yeah, it, it, the story is just. I, I've always found it really endearing yeah, and really cool. kind of remarkable. But you know. The, this chance meeting, it was the catalyst for Cook's second most popular hit on the U.S. charts because Chain Gang would actually become his second highest hit um, after You Send Me. Chain Gangs, uh, you know, they were groups of prisoners. They were linked together while performing physical labor, and they existed mostly in the South until 1955 when the practice was phased out, except in Georgia. Georgia, um, you know, Chain Gangs continued there through the 1960s, and they were first used... I mean, history lesson. They, they were first used during the Reconstruction of the South after the Civil War as a way to utilize prisoners as free labor in rebuilding Southern states' infrastructure. In the 90s, Alabama reintroduced them again. However, that brief experiment ended almost as quickly as it began because the media awarded it the moniker of commercialized slavery, um, which it, it is. I mean, it doesn't get more accurate than that. Um, but but the song, I, you know, it famously includes the sound of sledgehammers clanging into railroad ties. Uh, it was Cook's second biggest hit. It peaked at number two on both the Billboard Hot 100 and uh, the R&B charts. Um, you know, it's, it's well known. It's been covered by so many other artists, uh, like all of Sam Cook's work has been. But yeah, it was. Uh, it hit number two. It was his highest, second highest charting single in his career. Yosemite was the only one that beat it. Something saying, Well, don't you know that's the sound of the men working on the chain? Gang, that's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang, all day long they're saying, Well, don't you know that's the sound of the men working on the chain? Gang, that's the sound of the men working on the chain. Yay. Yeah, it's probably my second favorite Sam Cooke after What a Wonderful World. Yeah. So, very good. Yeah, I knew you'd have that, so I just didn't even, yeah. didn't even go there. Yeah, that was a given. Well, you kind of uh, guessed, or at least you mentioned my next choice here. Uh, early in the morning, factory whistle blows. Uh-huh. Man rises from bed and puts on his clothes. Man takes his lunch, walks out in the morning light. It's the working, the working, just the working life. Factory by the Boss. Factory by the Boss. And we talked a little bit a couple episodes about Darkness on the Edge of Town in 1978. And that was uh, Springsteen's departure from his boardwalk life. Um, Born to Run's kind of a transition. That's kind of, you know, the getting out part. Uh, then the question is, what, when you get out, what happens if the economic promise that you were pursuing doesn't exist? Right. And that's kind of darkness on the edge of town. And it's, it's, it's really kind of the prelude to what would become Nebraska. And, of course, born in the USA, where Springsteen became known for his working class hero songs. And this one actually is, is inspired by his father, who worked in a factory 
And Springsteen would, as a little boy, go down to the gates of the factory and watch his dad be very proud of his, his father as he went to work or came home from work. But then as he got older, he realized that a lot of the conflicts that they had, his father and son, came from the fact that his dad was just so worn down right. from such the hard labor that he experienced. Um, and I could imagine like the monotony. Like I've already established on the show, I, can't, I don't like doing anything <laughs> at all yes. more than a few times and I get bored. I can't imagine not, not only for eight hours a day working on an assembly line, but doing that five days a week and doing that 50 you know, weeks out of the year for 30, 40 years. I can't imagine that. Right. And so I could see how that would really grind somebody down. And so, yeah, even though it's about his father, it's, it's still kind of, um, it's kind of a generic, the, the lyrics are generic to just the working man. Factory couldn't make up my mind, and then I chose neither. Working on highway is a much more fun song. It is, and overwhelmingly, the majority of my songs are. I was looking for something more upbeat. I, I totally appreciate what you're doing, and I agree with it. And I thought about going in that direction, but you know, I Labor Day though, you can't forget the history, and you need to really appreciate how how the holiday came you know, to be. But it also, you know, it's that last vestige of summer. You know, it's it's no, the, it's the last. That's of why the we have a combination and, of yeah. both. So that, that's why I went more up, upbeat and more fun. But um, certainly, I, I thought long and hard about you know doing what what you're doing with some of the more serious subject matter. And the irony is similar to what you mentioned about Rush, um, Bruce Springsteen for being the working man heroes. You know, muse. He, he's never worked a day in his life. No, he hasn't. Uh, as far as labor goes, I mean, he obviously he's worked very hard in, in bands. And in, in, of, of some sort from the time he was a teenager on, but he never actually held a non-music related job. But again, that doesn't have to be a requirement. You know, Stephen Crane wrote one of the greatest Civil War accounts and never served as a soldier in the Civil War. So That's right. a great artist is able to, we talked about that with Billy Joel and Goodnight Saigon. A good artist can represent um, voices of people who are underrepresented and, and do it well, even if they haven't experienced it firsthand. Yep. But he experienced it through his father. I think that was the key was his father being able to yeah. see what that what what the working life did to his dad. Oh yeah, and you know, it, that was something that stayed with him and you know, you find it on every album. In some context, you find it on every album. Um, it's also the kind of the joke that this is about the time period where Springsteen started to read books. Because <laughs> <laughs> right? before everything was about, uh, you know, boardwalk life and what his experience growing yeah, up. It was boardwalk girls and cars. And then was, he he started reading books. And of course, famously, um, Born in the USA was inspired by Ron Kovic's uh, Born on the Fourth of July right. um, book and his account of coming back after the Vietnam War. So when Springsteen began, it goes to Tom Joe, 
code from reading um, Steinbeck. Wrath, yeah. And so the more that Springsteen began to read as he got older, it really informed his music. It did, yeah. All right, well, this next one, if you don't have it, I'd be really surprised unless you very intentionally just left it off or maybe put it on your alternates. But my next song is 9 to 5. I, I kept it off two reasons. One, I knew you would have it. Okay. And two, because I'm, mine is focused on labor, and nine to five is an office true. situation. True. That and so true. just because of that, it didn't fit the rest of my choices. Okay. I, but I knew you'd have it anyway. Yeah, that so. makes sense. Well, nine to five, you know, Parton, she wrote this for, of course, the 1980 film of the same name. Uh, the film, you know, which was Parton's acting debut, it, it co-starred Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dabney Coleman. And it dealt with life in an American office, like you just said, um, where the workday was nine to five. And, you know, she wrote the song while the movie was filming. The inspiration, this is, this is just, <laughs> I, I find this so interesting. The inspiration for the song was actually Parton's fingernails. She, That's not the body part, I would have guessed. No, right? She, she had very long acrylic nails, and she discovered that when she rubbed them together, which she did, you know, as just a, a, a nervous tick or, you know, like, like biting your nails, only she would rub her nails together, she, she discovered that by doing that, they created a rhythm that sounded like a typewriter. And since the movie was about secretaries, she was then able to use that sound to compose the song on the set. She even played her fingernails as part of the percussion sound when she recorded the track. That's one I haven't heard of, playing yeah. the fingernails. Exactly. I, to me, I, you know, I, when, I, when I heard that, when I learned that, I didn't hear it, I read it. Again, <laughs> but, a lot of bad uh, jokes come to mind with Dolly Parton, but yeah, I will not go no, there. No, but fingernails generally but is not a part of... That's, yeah. yeah. But, but speaking of typewriters... One was used in the recording of the song as well. And at different points in the song, now this is for our younger uh, listeners, at different points in the song, you can hear the sounds of some tapping, but then that is followed by a bell, okay? And our younger listeners may not know, I would suspect they don't know what they're hearing. Um, the, the typewriter, which you do know, was the, was the tool of the trade for secretaries in 1980. The typewriter had a bell that told the typist that he or she was nearing the end of the page and that they needed to return the carriage to the left and start a new line. Um, I, I just, when I, when I was, you know, typing up my notes and thinking about what I wanted to say, it, it occurred to me, you know, anybody, millennials, have never heard a typewriter. I, I mean, or, or very few. Well, I mean, maybe in old movies, right. they've heard the, yeah, but, like in but, old newsrooms, the yeah. clicking and clacking of the keys. But, but I know my, my own boys, they would have no idea what that bell is and why it's Well, I will say in my media center where I work, um, we have a little maker space where there are activities for kids to do in in study hall. They can come and sign up and have to do some. I have have two typewriters. Well, actually, I need to get it repaired, but I had two typewriters. Really? Where they could just have fun if they want to write poetry or just play around. I have a turntable for for the same reason. Okay. They can play music. And um, I have a, a, a dial Rotary phone. Rotary phone. <laughs> Obviously doesn't work, but again, they can play with it. Right. And it's, it's just amazing. Like they, they, they look at, like for instance, a, a vinyl record album, they think that's more amazing, the fact that these grooves create sound through the vibration of a needle. They think that's more technologically advanced than what they're used to with you know streaming media. Hmm. And the same thing with the typewriter. Like they're just amazed at 
how mechanical it is. Yeah. And what's great is it'll jam all the time. So that's part of the project is we'll we'll try and fix it and we'll take it apart and grease yeah. it up and try to get it working again. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's not part of their world. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we were 80s kids. I still remember typing class, you know. Uh, what was it? The quick, the... Uh the quick brown uh, fox, uh, fox jumped over, jumped the, lazy over the lazy dog, dog. Or whatever, yeah. yeah so and you know every every letter tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five The film and the song, 9 to 5, it exposed gender inequity in the workplace. Um, for that reason alone, I felt this song really, and this is where I, you know, I do kind of delve into, you know, some social issues here. Um, it, it, it was done for laughs, which was the only way it could reach a mass audience in 1980, but still, it made a strong statement. I mean, you had three female leads taking on their stereotypically disparaging boss. The song, it, it has a jaunty tone that fits the movie, but the lyrics ring true for many women. You know, they, they just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five, it didn't start any kind of movement, but it did push the issue of gender inequity forward. And when the Me Too movement took shape, it, it became a touchstone to measure progress. Women were still earning considerably less than men, still are, and dealing with an often criminal level of disrespect. So in 2018, the punk rock forebears Alice Bag, Kathleen Hanna, and Alison Wolf, they teamed up to recreate scenes from the movie for their video to the song 77. Um, 77, that their song, it refers to women uh, still earning only 77 cents for every dollar earned by a man and you know Parton Parton was more than qualified to write these lines she you know she conquered the male-dominated world of country music with extraordinary tact and ambition um, she was a this was a huge crossover hit for Parton I mean it, it expanded her audience to the world of mainstream pop and, and she acted in the movie but she hasn't acted much since has well, she 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 had a string of films Did she have, okay. in the early to mid 80s okay I don't think she's been in anything yeah because uh, you know, most people associate her with being the musician yeah, and not, right, not an actress. Exactly, um, but she, you know, on the charts, she was a trailblazer. She helped later female country music artists like Faith Hill and Shania Twain make headway on the pop charts. Oh, and then um, there's Dolly World. Yeah, well, which actually is a really cool have you place. been there? I've been to Dollywood. Yeah, it's Dollywood, it's, not Dolly World. Yeah. Wally World, Dollywood. Well, well, yeah, there we no, go. Yeah, Dollywood is actually it's, it's it is a really fun. It's it's a small uh, it's a smaller park. It, it reminds me in many ways of like the old. You know, Jug Lake. But I mean, is it but more like a generic park, or is it really country music themed oh, it, with it her is, everywhere? It, well, she's not everywhere, but she is definitely there. It's a country and western. It's a frontier. Oh, okay. You know, um, very Tennessean um, themed 
park. Um, like Frontierland and Cedar Point, but the entire park? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. very, very nearly. Uh, there's actually, the mine ride is genuinely a mine ride, which hmm. is really interesting. It's unlike most that I've I've seen. And I on. thought you said mime ride. I mean, that'd be, mime. that'd be a quiet. That'd be a quiet uh, ride. No, no, no mime ride. But that would be that would be interesting. <laughs> uh, nine to five. It peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It went on to win the 1981 Grammy for Best Country Song, the Grammy for Best Country Vocal Performance, Female. It received a Grammy nomination for Best Album of Original Score, written for a motion picture or television special. It received Oscar and Golden Globe nominations. Um, it also won the People's Choice Award uh, for Favorite Motion Picture Song. I mean, it was it's a song that, you know, from the very first verse, you know, tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, you know, yawn and stretch and try to come alive. Um, I, I love that line. I've always loved that line. I don't consider... Dolly Parton to be prolific <laughs> necessarily, although maybe I should. I mean, she she has a very deep catalog, but just that that line, pour myself a cup of ambition. I've always loved. To me, that is well. What else rhymes know, with the kitchen? Well, uh, yeah, true. <laughs> I'm but, kidding. I'm not. It's a great line. <laughs> oh, you cheapen. It's a great. It's it. a great line. Um, yeah, no, I can I just, just kitchen ambition, or maybe the opposite way. Maybe she wanted to rhyme ambition. With, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, but that is to me. I, I drink coffee incessantly, you know. And if you want to talk, you know, a cup of Joe, I mean, it, that's what it is. It is literally ambition, you know. It, you you drink it and you're addicted to it because, you know, for, for me, I, I need it or I don't function throughout the day. So, um, but yeah, it, it was just a no brainer and had to include it. Yep, I knew you'd have it. I knew you'd have. It. There's another one I think you're going to have too that I did not include. So if you don't, we won't have it. But. Okay. All right. Well, I mentioned there were a couple long songs and there were a couple short songs, okay? And I wouldn't include the long ones if I didn't think they were worth it. Working Man is completely worth it, as is this song. Great song, but I'm going to prepare you. Clock's in at 10 minutes long. Ten minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes long. And you know the song. It doesn't feel like 10 minutes. I. It doesn't feel... It's, it's a progressive pop song that doesn't feel like it's 10 minutes long. Okay. The lyrics go, we followed the rail, we slept under the stars, digging in darkness and living with danger, showing no fear of what lies up ahead. They'll never see the likes of us again. Those lyrics were penned by Phil Collins. I, I know it's Genesis. Driving the last spike. Yeah. yeah from yeah. We Can't Dance. Um, yeah. I Well, you said 10 minutes and you said progressive and it had to be Genesis. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, I just, I kind of put that together. Collins wrote the lyrics as the inner monologue of a worker who toiled building Britain's railway uh, in the 19th century. So this time it's not coal, but it's the same idea. You know, the lyrics talk about we came from the north, we came from the south. So, you know, like America, but Britain's had economic hardships throughout the years, and they've relied on their labor, and, and, and they've had a strong labor force, especially when it came to advancing civilization and building the buildings and building the roads and, and building the railways. And so here in America, we of course, we know a lot of immigrant labor provided right. that. In England, it was like the working class. People literally left their homes and traveled and journeyed um, and were away from their families for months, maybe even years. Right. And a lot of times they didn't come home because it, the conditions were not very safe and people died. And if you didn't die, it tore something from you, you know, when you're not with your family and you do come home. So 
these are the types of ideas that Collins tried to express, kind of taking on this this character. Um, despite the song never being released as a single, obviously clocking in at over ten minutes, it received a ton of airplay on AOR mm-hmm. stations. Yeah, and like I say, it, it just doesn't feel like. In fact, I was shocked when I when I looked this week because um, I'm I was like I said I went through the songs and I'm listening to it and, and the song changes. It's progressive, but it's not like excessively progressive uh, it's, it's not, still it's not peter gabriel it feels yeah. like a pop song <laughs> right but there are certain movements to it but the movements are more conventional and there's there's more of a structure and so you're kind of listening to it and all of a sudden i just looked up and i'm like 10 minutes long it, it, i would have said five minutes honestly so i'm defending it even though it's long Well, now we have two songs about trains because my next song is Morning Train, uh, subtitled 9 to 5, and it's by Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton. Easton. I figured you'd include that as well. Um, And on my list, I mean, that and she and Parton were side by side very intentionally. Um, You know, Sheena Easton, I I, I was in love with Sheena Easton. She was just one of those artists that just, you know, uh, teenage, teenage Alan was just, you know, smitten with with Sheena Easton. She she may have been a, a liberated independent woman, but in this song she sings about how dull her life is while she's waiting for her man to come home and show her a good time after work. Um, the song presents an, an odd vision of suburban happiness. I mean, the man takes the train into work, he does his eight hours, then he returns home, and he entertains his wife with movies, dancing, anything else she wants, then they make love. I mean, it's, it's not the vision of romance portrayed in many love songs, but Easton here seems thrilled to have a man who is gainfully employed. I mean, that, that's that's the entire core of the song. But, you know, there's there's a, quite a disconnect between the character Easton plays in this song and the real Sheena. For one thing, she didn't write it. Um, Sheena Easton wrote most of her own music. Um, when the song was released, she was just 20 years old. She was recently divorced. She was on her way to becoming a global superstar. And she had a talent, really, for taking on any role. So she had no problem becoming a dance diva, like Strut, you know, a sex kitten, think like Sugar Walls, or even a Bond girl, I mean, for your eyes only, you know. But but outside the United States... did she do something with Don Johnson, too? 
I know they had a thing. I think they did a yeah, song well, together. Yeah, well, she she made a couple of appearances on Miami Vice as well. I, I don't know. I just I'd, 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 I'd to seem to remember up. something yeah, there to too. Um, outside of the U.S., this song was titled Nine to Five, but the title was changed in America to avoid confusion with. Dolly the Parton. previous song we yeah. discussed. Uh, Parton's song came from the movie. You know, she starred in of the same name as I've said, um, but you know, it was quite a different storyline than Easton's song. So Parton's Nine to Five had spent two. It really had spent the last two weeks uh, of February 1981 at number one in America. So Easton's was at the top uh, of the charts for the first two weeks of May, um, which uh, just a few months later. So she changed the title to Morning Train, 9 to 5, uh, so that, you know, it wouldn't be confused. Sheena Easton, though, this is interesting. She was perhaps the first star. We've, we've talked about, like, American Idol, The Voice, things of that nature. She was probably, really, perhaps the first star to emerge from a reality TV show. In 1980, she appeared on a BBC show called The Big Time, which followed ordinary people on their quest for success. Wait, she was British? She's British, yeah. Okay, so today I learned Sheena Easton is British. You didn't know that? I've lived 47 years, and I did not know that she was British. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's, wow. yeah, she's from okay. the other side of the pond. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah the, the big time, um, you know, it, it followed ordinary people on their quest for success. And, and Easton, she was going to school at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama at the time. And she got the gig when the show's producers contacted one of her teachers looking for a suitable subject. So Easton was granted a made-for-TV audition with EMI, which turned real when they realized that she was stunningly beautiful and could really sing. dominated the pop charts um in the 80s and just um or early to mid 80s anyway and you know i, I was she I, I had a crush on her uh, i had a crush on a lot of people though so that means very little in context um but yeah i just just because of you know the the two songs together nine to five and then morning train and how that you know same year i i just found that so interesting and i love the song i mean it, it is it is pure pop but it's it's just a fun song about you know waiting for the the work day to end and i don't know just in keeping with just the more upbeat and playful nature of my list it just felt like a perfect perfect song to add so yeah that's great and i think it's interesting in the early 80s 
you do see the cultural norms changing. So in nine to five, obviously, women, right, are taking a more prominent role in the, in the workspace. Um, I, I always thought it was funny because we're from the Midwest. So the nine to five thing really didn't apply here. So I remember like, you know, having to be at school at like freaking 730 or eight, something like that. And I'm yeah. like, I'd love to like, but, but he had to go nine to five because people well, you had in New sp- York had to take the train. Right. So yeah, they were getting up at the same time, but they had to, you know, drive to the train station, get on the train, travel into the city. Yeah. And so that whole, whole deal. And then by the time you take the train home, you know, after work, you're not getting home till six or six thirty. And so that's really wasn't our experience culturally, but I can see how you know, living in a big city, especially like New York City, that's very much the experience, um, that commute time. And Absolutely. it would make sense that both of those songs would become popular as, as the yuppie um, culture kind of yeah. came to be oh, about yeah. that time. The young, young upward, uh, young, upwardly mobile young, professionals. Young urban professionals. The urban professionals, yeah, right. urban, yeah. Um, it kind of, yeah, the workforce really changed to kind of a white collar type of uh, yeah. economy. Very much so. All right. Well, my next one, I promised you I would have a couple short songs, and uh, this one clocks in at just over two minutes, so I'm going to make up for driving the last spike. <laughs> this is a song uh, that a band, the band actually recorded twice, um, for one for a later triple album that they did, um, where they had uh, actually kids singing the vocals. It's interesting. Uh, I know you look like, hmm. The song title even inspired a John Hughes movie. In the '80s, okay. You think yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll. Well, I'm, I'm going to read the lyrics, but it's the first line of the lyrics spoils well, the name of the song. It, are we talking psychedelic furs? Or? Nope, no. But um, but you're in the similar genre. Okay, John Hughes. Career opportunities. Ah, okay. Career opportunities, the ones that never knock. Every job they offer you is to keep you off the dock. Uh, career opportunities, the ones that never knock. And the whole song is, of course, this is by The Clash. Clash, The Clash, Career Opportunities. If you, um, we talked about Britain a lot in the show. The economic times everywhere, of course, in the late 70s were difficult. Oh, yeah. Britain was no exception. And so this song is about the opportunities that existed for young adults uh, at the time economically. And there just weren't a lot of them, right? And the song kind of playfully lists a, a lot of different opportunities that are available to them, but they're very mundane type of jobs, bus driver, postal clerk, things that just did not inspire the dreams of the young people at that time. Right. In fact, it's one of the, 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 one of the first, I think it's the first stanza, has one of the greatest rhythmic cadences of any lyrics ever. And it's, I'm not going to attempt to sing it, but it basically says, you know, you're going to make tea for the BBC. And I just love the way that, I believe Mick Jones sings lead on this one, tea for the BBC. But it's just a great two-minute punk song uh, about the lack of career opportunities um, in England at the time. And it became kind of an anthem um, for, for the kind of the working class, uh, the young working class people at the time. One of the careers they mention is 
like checking for bombs in, 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 in the post, you know, in, in mail. But uh, that was actually a job that Mick Jones had early on in his life hmm. where because England, they were under constant threat of bombings with the IRA and right. yeah, all yeah. sorts of other political things that were going on. And so he worked for a government agency. His job was to literally open up the mail and he said most of it were people complaining that their neighbor didn't deserve their welfare check or whatever, <laughs> people trying to turn on their neighbors. Um, but they, yeah, he would just make sure that it didn't explode and kill some important government official. So they joke about that being a job, but that was actually a job that he held. All right, well, I'm gonna, I need to go to my alternates list because um, I already did once, but I need to do it again because we had, I had two matches with you. Um, this next one um, is just, it, it's a, galloping rhythm it's a fun song to sing um and you know from musicians and artists everywhere the struggle between succeeding financially and artistically is a constant battle so leave it to morrissey to speak the gospel of hating a soul-sucking job morrissey tune frankly mr shankly oh okay wow frankly Mr. maybe my favorite album of all time by the way my my favorite by them uh without question the queen is dead yeah the lyrics go frankly mr shankly this position i've held it pays my way and it corrodes my soul now i can say it i'm impressed alan oh that's so condescending (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm you know it pays my way it corrodes my soul i want to leave you will not miss me I want to go down in musical history. I mean, you know, frankly, Mr. Shankly, it appears on the 1986 album, The Queen is Dead. Uh, The song was written by Morrissey and Smith's guitarist Johnny Marr in a marathon writing session in the late summer of 85. Um, Same session created I Know It's Over and There's a Light That Never Goes Out. Um, As evidenced from the lyrics, the song tells the story of a person that dreams of and probably deserves some recognition from uh, his employer, only to find that his boss has the same dreams. Uh, it's a sympathetic and honest look at how things are in the real world. But the song really, really was more than an average worker's lament. I mean, at the f- at the time, the Smiths were unhappy with their Rough Trade recording label. And, and this song was aimed squarely at Jeff Travis, who was the head of the label. Um, their discontent was obvious in the unabashedly direct lyric, Frankly, Mr. Shankly, since you ask... You are a flatulent pain in the ass. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and, and Travis has since acknowledged that the line in the song about bloody awful poetry was in reference to a poem he really had written. Really awful poetry. Yeah, he had written and showed to Morrissey. Um, <laughs> the band finally did sever ties with Rough Trade uh, in July 1986, even as The Queen is Dead was basking in critical acclaim and achieving strong sales. Uh, after one more album, the Smiths were free to move from Rough Trade to EMI. And as an interesting aside... This, I don't know if you know this, Morrissey actually sent a postcard to Linda McCartney because he asked her, he wanted her to play the piano on the track. Hmm. Now, um, hopefully he didn't want her to sing. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but Macca's former missus, I mean, she politely turned down the offer, but I, I, I can't even envision <laughs> Linda McCartney singing or performing with the Smiths. Frankly, Mr. 
frankly, Mr. Shankly, I'm a sickening wreck. I've got the 21st century breathing down my neck. I must move fast. You understand me. I want to go down in celluloid history, Mr. Shankly. I don't believe that was a single in the UK or no, anywhere, no, correct? No, it was okay. never released, no. Um, because the Smiths, it's weird. They never were commercially successful no, in this country. Never. Um, and they're very, I, you know, it's like the definition of what we call 80s alternative. But they were, in England, kind of just a pop band, and they had a ton of hits that, that went to the top of the charts. And, in fact, a lot of their work were just singles that were later collected right. on, on compilations. Yeah. Uh, they had very few true studio albums like Meet His Murder right. Being His Dad of course Strange Ways Here We Come and then they only had four or five releases before right. unfortunately they, they broke up now, I've, I've been looking for a way to get the Smiths on here I wanted to impress you All right. which I did I and it was between I for a long while I was going to go with Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now but I, I thought Frank you know every, the majority of my list is more up tempo and the Smiths I mean they only have a handful of songs that are up tempo really um, but it's like you said, I think you said it a couple of weeks ago, where like the blues are supposed to make you feel, feel better. Better, yeah. And because they are so satirical, and, and, and Morrissey's lyrics are so self-deprecating and over the top, yes. that I remember as a kid, if I felt down, I would listen to his lyrics, and the Smiths actually made me feel better. Yep. Oh, I when I had you know a, the, a bad breakup, I know it's over. Oh my gosh! I yes. would play that song over. That made it on a over. few uh, mixtape breakup mixtapes. Yes, uh, for me as well. So or there's a light that never goes out. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Queen is dead is one of the finest, if not my favorite, one of the finest LPs ever constructed. I agree. Uh, definitely, I think the greatest alternative album of all time. Yeah, well, I mean, just the the idea, you know. Morrissey's idea of a summer song is, you know, to play in the cemetery gates. You right, know? right. Like, I mean, they're just, uh, yeah, they're good they're stuff. They are All right. Well, I'm happy that else. that made my that made my day. There, I, that good. was my intent. So there we go. All right. So I have uh, an alternate pick now, and I'm going to do the thing where I don't know for sure yet. So I'm going to run through them quickly. Um, I have Elvis Costello's "Welcome to the Working Week." That's on my alternate list as well. Which I want to. Which inc- is very short. It's very. No, that was my other short one. If I if I chose um, that particular song, it, it it also fits because Costello himself was a working. He was man in a factory. Yep. Although he just ran a machine, he used to joke that he wore a lab coat. And people thought he was a rocket scientist, and it was a cosmetic factory. And really, all he did was start the machine, and then he would read the newspaper all day, or he'd write songs. And even, he would take sick days to record the album, his first <laughs> album. And then when the album came out, he still didn't quit his job because he didn't know if he would be if the album would be successful enough. Well, of right. course it was, and he quit his job. So uh, a lot of early Elvis Costello deals with some of the more menial parts of life, and Welcome to the Working Week is definitely that. Uh, then I, I just had to throw it on there, A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. Hmm. Yep. I, I had no Beatles and... No Lennon. I I thought about Working Class Hero, but ugh, it's probably my least. It's favorite a pretty song. down. Song. It is my least favorite song by Lennon. I did. Yeah. I didn't even think Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Honestly, and it's just a it's it, it's pretty nonsensical. Really, the song itself isn't 
about working per se. Uh, working like a dog. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is about that, but it doesn't really explore the issue, I should say, very, very deeply. True. Um, it really came from the fact that uh, they, they were working so hard. They, they were making the movie. By the way, Hard Day's Night did not have a title yet. And they're trying to come up with a title. And Ringo said something like by mistake. He said, because uh, they'd worked all day and then they'd worked all night. And he went to say, boy, that was a really hard day. And he stopped and then he said, night. Because he realized that it was almost the next morning. Right. And they all laughed because it, the timing was funny. And I think John may have been the one that said, we should, we should use that. That should be the title of the film. And then John was tasked to go write the song mm-hmm. for the film. And McCartney sings the bridge because it was too high for John. But yeah, I mean, it still it still fits the theme. So it I does. could choose that one. Yeah. Um, this one, <laughs> I had to bring the girls back. Indigo Girls. <laughs> I knew they'd be there. Hammer and Nail. <laughs> yep. Just because I wanted to represent people that wanted to work in a volunteer sense and not because they have to for a living. Oh, it's a great song. And Hammer and Nail was inspired by Emily and, and Amy's work with Habitat for Humanity, which yep. was, of course was started by Jimmy Carter in their native state of, of Georgia. And I love the song, you know, like the lyric, had a lot of good intentions, sit around for 50 years and collect a pension. I started seeing the road to hell and just where it starts, but my life is more than a vision. The sweetest part is acting after making a decision. I started seeing the world as the sum of its parts. Yeah, well, even the chorus, you know, gotta get out of bed and get a hammer and a nail. Got to use my hands instead of my head. I think myself. I'll, th- I'll think myself. I'll think yeah. myself into jail. Think, yeah, think myself into jail. I mean, this is one I know. I, I know early. Right. Indigo Girls. It's a fantastic song. Well, and, to, and for me, it, it, it's relevant because I'm in that stage of life now where my kids are grown. And, you know, at this point, we're financially comfortable, but anything can happen, of course, with the state of the economy. So there are no guarantees. But what that means is that I I have an opportunity to give back with my time or my finances. And what am I doing with that time? And so it's a kind of a dilemma that's been going through my mind is where can I give back to my community? Where can I give back to, to the to the world? And not just like she says, sit around and wait for the pen, the pension, you know, um, and so this song is inspiring in that way. And I still haven't figured it out, what I need to be doing. Um, hopefully I'll figure that out because I think it is important if we have the time or the means to, to make your community better that we probably should. So it, it's a labor song. It's about physical labor, but it's not forced physical labor. It's labor of choice mm-hmm. for the betterment of society. Uh, I also included Solidarity Forever, which is an old, old, old folk song. It's uh, to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it was, it's been sung for over 100 years by labor unions. Um, but I have, there's a version by Tom Morello from uh, Rage Against the Machine who's devoted his life to combating oh, yeah. inequality Absolutely. and fighting for social justice. And he had an entire album called Union Town where he basically covers all of these union folk songs. And his version of this is it's great. So if I don't pick it, I'll definitely put it on the, on the alternates list, of course. And sixteen tons, which you already took. So I don't know. Do we want uh, do we want to go really hardcore union labor with Tom Morello? Do we want Indigo Girls? Um, even though I've used them quite a bit, Hard Days Night or Welcome to the Working Week? What do we think we need in terms of um, keeping the sequence fresh? You know, we have a lot of labor songs. We have a lot of fun songs. Right. Um, I well, if you want to. If you're looking for for diversity, then Morello is is your pick. If you want something 
playful, which we have plenty of. Um, that would be Hard Day's Night. Costello. Everyone knows Costello, Hard, oh, Costello or, too. Or, or yeah. the Beatles. Yeah. Um, Indigo Girls, of course, are you know That's somewhere in the song. middle. That's it a is a great song. Let's do Hammer Nail. It's your choice. I'm going to do Hammer Nail. You can okay. go. You can quit listening, folks. If I over Indigo Girls, <laughs> the show, but they're that good, and I'm I'm, I'm doing it. Hammer okay. Nail. Hammer and Nail. Well, my last song, um, this is the first playlist that I've, I've come up with, the first 10 song choices that, that really had a good bit of country, but it's all classic country. And this is, I'm thinking, the one that I knew you would pick, so I didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a given. Um, two very famous versions. The song was written by David Allen Coe, um, but Johnny Paycheck performed yep, the song that's first. The that's the one. Uh, so, yeah, my 10th song on my list is take this job and shove it um you know it it was a 1977 country song again written by co and and it was popularized by paycheck uh it's about the bitterness of a man who has worked long and hard with no apparent reward uh the song was first recorded by paycheck in his album also titled take this job and shove it and um his recording hit number one on the country charts for two weeks it spent 18 weeks on the charts Uh, i was paychecks only number one hit. Coe's own recording was released a year later in 78 on his album, Family Album. Uh, David Allen Coe um, also recorded a variation of the song called Take This Job and Shove It 2 on his 1980 album, I've Got Something to Say. David Allen Coe, he grew increasingly annoyed and, and really angry because a majority of people assumed that Paycheck had written the song, even though the, the singer, or uh, the single released by Paycheck and the subsequent album, both correctly credit Co as the song's composer. Um, but but several very different artists have covered this song. I mean, the Dead Kennedys uh, covered it. I haven't heard that version. Yeah, on, on their album of Bedtime for Democracy. Uh, Cannabis and Biz Markey <laughs> retitled their cover, Shove This J-O-B, and you can find that on the soundtrack to the movie Office Space. And Chuck Barris... Okay, uh, who was in a band? It was Chuck. You mean Gong Show? Chuck Barris? Yes, yes, him. Chuck Barris and the Hollywood Cowboys. They performed a modified version as Barris's swan song just before he left the band to host the Gong Show in 1978. And it's a wild assortment of people who've covered this song. Um, and 
Take This Job and Shove It, because the song became a popular phrase as a result, um, it also became a snow clone phrase. Do you know what, do you know what a snow clone phrase is? I don't. It, it's a cliche and a phrasal template, basically, that can be used and recognized in multiple variants. So it led to a variety of book and article titles uh, of the form Take This Job and Blank It. Oh, okay. Um, the most common, and, and there were over 200 of these, the most common is Take This Job and Love It, which uh, was the title of like self-help countless books? Yeah. books, mostly about career counseling. Right. Um, the other one was um, sometimes you know the the snow clone phrase would be take this blank and shove it uh, was the other one that you know they'd they'd replace one or the other words. Um, but yeah, I mean the song is just I mean it, you can just feel the singer's exhaustion is you know just how defeated he is, and of course. You know, he his woman has just left him, and she was what he was working for, and now he has no reason, you know, that he thinks is worth the the struggle of of you know the the workplace. It, it's just, yeah, it was a no brainer for me. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reason I was working for. You better not. their job i mean this is this this is the song you want to quit to this is the song you want to walk out with you know yeah it's the first song when i told my wife what we were doing for labor day she said oh take this job and shove right. it and i said i'm not going to include it on my list and she said why i said because alan will yeah yeah and and much the same reason i i stared away from springsteen um but my alternates uh just to go over the songs i didn't use i had four alternates that were not used one uh surprisingly because i think most people would assume i would include this one was it's five o'clock somewhere by alan jackson and uh of course jimmy, jimmy it's buffett. a duet with jimmy buffett who you know is often uh, he made a, a buffett made a career singing about the pleasures of not <laughs> working but that's more about day drinking right it, yeah it's day drinking but it, it's basically um yeah, and it, it's, you know, he, it, it's a song about a man who's just, again, tired of work. He says, I ain't had a day off now in over a year. My Jamaican vacation's going to start right here. You could have and also chosen The Weather is Here, Wish You Were Beautiful. Wish You Were Beautiful. Yeah, it would have been a great choice as well. Um, yeah, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. I mean, it is an Alan Jackson song, um, 
but Buffett is basically taking it as his own, deservedly so. I mean, he he is the focus of the song, and uh, now it's just a staple of his live concerts. For the second time, because it was on my alternates list once before, I have Richard Corey by Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah, right. Um, this is the second time it was an alternate, and the second time that alternate was not picked. Um, but Richard Corey... Uh, which is, which is the lyrics are based on a, a poem. Yeah, by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Right, yeah. and uh, yeah, it kind of shows the, the, the dark side of being right. wealthy. Yeah, and because uh, yeah, the man everyone, you know, looks up to and wishes they were, and then, you know, the just the owner of the factory where the, the narrator works... Uh, you know, Richard Corey seems to have it all, but you know, money does not buy contentment, money does not buy happiness, and it does not buy company. Then I had Five O'Clock World by the Vogues, um, which was uh, Drew Carey theme for yeah. for at least one season. Yep, it was a huge hit um, in the mid '60s, but it also became to a new generation associated with Jim Carrey. It was just the, the second of Carrey's three uh, theme songs. And my last song, which I kind of wanted uh, because it, I just love the song and it would have been a fun fun one to include, Taking Care of Business by Bachman Turner Overdrive. I considered that one, yep. yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it really, I mean, you know, Bachman Turner Overdrive, it's one of my favorite. Cla- I mean, the song propelled the phrase, Taking Care of Business, into the popular lexicon. I mean, it's forever, to, still, it, it will forever be used by athletes, performers, and even the common man to indicate they're on the job, but... Even though the phrase had never been sung in a popular song before uh, BTO, it was, you know, this was not the first use of the phrase in the musical landscape. Elvis loved the saying. He wore a TCB necklace and called his backing group the TCB band. And Aretha Franklin, you know, in, in the song Respect, you know, she she alludes to it, take care, TCB. Um, ironically, though, even though the song title... Oh, is that what she's saying in the song? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. nobody could ever figure yeah. out. Take care, TCB. Yeah, taking care of business. Yeah. Ah, uh, look at that! I've learned two things on my own podcast today. And then, what I love about the song, though, ironically, even though the song title implies an industrious responsibility, a closer listen reveals that the song is actually about a slacker. I mean, it's a slacker anthem because the singer is presumably unemployed, and he loves to work at nothing all day. I mean, that's the lyric. Um, so a lot of people misconstrue, and you know, it's. It's really a slacker anthem. Um, but those were my alternates I did not use and uh, would have loved any one of them to make the list, but you can't have them all. So. Yeah, no, that's going to be a good um, alternate playlist. Oh, there. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, we need to sequence these songs, title our mixtape, and do our uh, soundtracks. Soundtrack It'll be statement. interesting because we could, we could do like one side serious labor songs and one side fun songs. Could. Or we could alternate them back and forth, so the listener has kind of a true bipolar experience. <laughs> we could go by sound, you yeah, know, and tempo, or uh, you know, just just the rhythm, uh, rhythmic nature of the songs. We could go. We can do any. I, we could put all the Cole songs together, all the, the two Train songs together. I, there's a lot we can do here. S- someone suggested, and we're not going to do this. So don't get any ideas. <laughs> but to be more authentic. We should also make sure that each side fits a 45-minute side of a tape. Oh, that's too much math. So I was thinking in terms of my long songs, like Driving the Last Spike would be out the window. And 
They said, if we end up having extra space, like if you have an extra five minutes on side A, then we use one of the alternates. And Now, that I would love, it. because I always regret the songs that didn't yeah. make it. But yeah. But yeah, that's too much That's math. too much. I, we're, <laughs> we're both English teachers, folks. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's why I don't, that's why I teach English, is, you know, to escape the world of math. Um, but... Yeah, no. no. <laughs> I, I love the idea of fitting in those those one or two. That's just a little songs, too OCD but, for us. Yeah, and and the day is coming. I mean, someday I'm going to pull out like Roundabout by Yes, which takes an entire side by itself. So no, we can't. We can't do that. <laughs> but um, it's interesting though. Who who just family friend? I mean, yeah, just a, okay. a listener. That I didn't. I didn't know if it was uh, okay. So yeah. a listener. Um, it's an interesting idea, but yeah, no, 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 no. All right, so we're going to sequence the songs, and we will be right back. And we're back, and Alan and I have come up with a sequence that I think works pretty well. Yeah, no, we've we've managed both by sound and by theme uh, to alternate from the the trivial and the and the funky to the more serious and social uh, political commentary. I mean, it, it's it it works. It's really, I think, well done. Um, side A. Uh, we begin with Working for a Living by Huey Lewis and the News. And that then goes into Hammer and a Nail by Indigo Girls, to Driving the Last Spike by Genesis, into Rocks in the Box by the Decemberists, followed by Red Hill Mining Town by U2, into 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford, then Working in a Coal Mine by Lee Dorsey. That is followed by Summertime Blues by Eddie Cochran, Frankly, Mr. Shankly by the Smiths, and we end side one with Career Opportunities by The Clash. And then on our second side, side B, we begin with Working for the Weekend by Loverboy, Into Blue Collar Man by Styx, Working Man by Rush, then Factory by Bruce Springsteen, Big Boss Man by Nancy Sinatra, that's followed by Chain Gang by Sam Cooke, then Bang on the Drum All Day by Todd Rundgren. Morning Train, 9 to 5, by Sheena Easton, followed by 9 to 5, by Dolly Parton, and we end our mixtape with Take This Job and Shove It, by Johnny Paycheck. Yeah, that works on a, a lot of levels, because we have all the kind of labor mining songs together, Yeah. Um, but, the, but they're sonically different, they're varied. Yes. Um, we have um, nice little areas of like kind of the late 70s, not quite progressive rock, but when you talk Rush and you talk Sticks and you know that little genre there represented, then going into Springsteen, and then we have like all the ones that everybody expects us to pick. Right, we have the two nine the to end. fives back to back. We end with two country. I, it's just yeah, it works. Yeah, it's one of our sequentially. It works on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, sometimes yeah. we pick just by sound, we pick in ways, we pick by theme, but this one. I everything just kind of came together. It meshes really well. Yep, so. I'm, I'm I'm impressed. That's good. Okay, so it is time for our soundtrack segment, and again, I don't have any idea who went for. Okay, I'll read it <laughs> okay. All right, Alan, you've been cryo frozen and brought back one thousand years from now. Okay. What song do you play for the people of the future to sum up music from your time? So I am forcing you to choose the ultimate Gen X song. Mm. One song to convince song. people what music was like in our era. Oh my good God. <laughs> um, I, 
one song that defines Generation X. I. Hmm. You can keep thinking about it. You can read mine. Yeah. Why? Well, oh boy. Um, yours is going to be so much easier than mine. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Let me keep thinking. All right. Here's yours. What song is playing in your head as you make sweet, 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 sweet love well, this is to your spouse? Personal. Wow, that's uncomfortable. It's the luck of the, the draw. <laughs> the, the SpongeBob theme. <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how does the sponge keep no, making just, an appearance just, on, our, <laughs> on our podcast? Um, Oh boy, I could, I could, yeah, that's that's uncomfortable. But let me think about it here. You're gonna be romantic and soft, or you're gonna be raunchy and risque. Well, okay, not to get too personal or anything, but I will say that. um, But it doesn't have to be you. No, I know, I understand. Think eighties, eighties comedy. I don't know. Clapton's Twenty Four Nights, believe it or not, has some really good long grooves on that album. It does, yeah. And uh, you know, like old love, and have you ever loved a woman? And yeah, let's just say that's. I'll say, have you ever loved a woman? Even though the lyrically, it's it's about uh, wanting someone you can't have. Well, and she's also not a very right kind. But it's but it's it's <laughs> but got a nice groove. I'll it, just, it does. Just say okay. There. Well, you, you you did that too quickly. Um, <laughs> what one song best defines Generation X? Um, you know what? I've I've, I've got to do it. Let's go. We are the world. Um, I mean, this, that makes sense. Actually. Yeah, the song. I mean, today I don't know that it holds up very well. Um, yeah, musically, I, I don't know that it held up well then, really. But what was the marvel? What, what was so remarkable about it is you brought together every well, not every, but very nearly every major recording artist of the time. Different genres. Yeah, and and you know, if you watch like you know the the, the behind the scenes footage, they were all you know just. And on speechless. I mean, because you know, you had so many varied acts that had never met one another, that influenced and inspired one another, and they were they were like the average man running into a favorite artist right, on right, the right. street. Yep. Um, and you introduced them to so many different voices and so many styles. I mean, just to hear Springsteen and Ray Charles in their call and response, and you know, you got you've got Michael Jackson, you've got. I never understood uh, it. You had like. All the musical artists in the world, and then Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I, yeah, that was. Uh, I, was he just hanging around in the studio one day, and he just decided to wander in? You need a blues brother. Okay, um, well, <laughs> it just you can't, make any you sense. can't have them both. Belushi had long since, you know. Believe it or not, um, that song was the introduction to me to Bob Dylan. Really, that yes, was the one. Yes, I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, that's one that my parents he they were into Dylan, and after you know, I pretty much knew everybody uh, in in that uh, that ensemble, but I didn't know Bob Dylan, and so I kind of kind of went to the library, and I think I got his greatest hits yeah. album after that. The the first song I remember by Dylan, and I I have no idea where I would have heard it, probably just the radio, but it was the first song that I heard by him. I had no idea who was singing it, but Lay Lady Lay was the very first which, song I remember He doesn't hearing. even sound like himself yeah, on that and, track. Yeah, he sings which, really low. Yeah, so I mean, when, when I finally discovered Dylan on my own, and, you know, of course, I started with the early works, you know, Blowing in the Wind, Times They Are Changing, uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and then worked my way, you know, from that point, you know, um, you know everyone must get stoned, and then you take Lay Lady Lay, and it, it does. I mean, it doesn't even sound like him, so I, you know, being the first song I heard, I never would have established in my mind that that was Dylan in the first place. Um, 
But yeah, that's well. That's what I love so much about him. He just just does his thing. He does, yeah. Um, no, he definitely does. Um, anyway, back to We Are the World. I, I, I catch off guard there with uh, Dan Aykroyd. I just had to make that statement. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a valid point. But I, I had to. I mean, the man can't sing. I mean, you know, the Blues Brothers. They were wildly successful, starting with Saturday Night Live into the film and beyond. Um, but I, that's my only guess. I mean, I don't know. Well, I, even Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, you go back and you watch it. Why is Dan Aykroyd, you know, ushering Harrison Ford to the plane? I mean, it, it's a, it's an uncreated. Wait, what? You didn't know that uh, Dan Aykroyd was in the Indiana Jones trilogy? No. Yeah, it, it's actually, um, it's not Raiders. It's, it's Temple of Doom. Uh, it's right after he and Short Round and... Uh, uh, what was Kate Capshaw's character? Willie uh, escape, you know, in the car chase. They they get on the plane, and it was uh, basically Dan Aykroyd who is walking them to the plane. Is it, is it obvious that it's him, or is it like the stormtrooper cameos in the new Star Wars? No, where it's, it's obvious. He you, he has a mustache, but it's it's clearly Dan Aykroyd. It was just this uncredited <laughs> he keeps popping cameo. Up and he's weird. he's like Randall Flagg. He yeah, just pops yeah. up in places where I, he shouldn't. So, there are so many examples. I, I still remember Huey Lewis judging you know Marty McFly's band. That was an obvious cameo. Like, right. We were supposed to know that was Huey well, Lewis. True, I don't true. think we were supposed to know that was Dan Aykroyd, right? Yeah, go back and watch it. It's it's. It Maybe because it's my least favorite Jones film, and I've probably only seen it could, once or could twice. Be. But yeah, he's, he's on screen for maybe 30 seconds. But, you know, it, it's definitely him. And I, I don't know if he just ran into Spielberg. I mean, it's not it's not a role that, you know, I would think Spielberg or Lucas would go to Dan Aykroyd and say we No, no, he was probably busy it, on the set and the and the the extra that was supposed to play that role called off sick. Yeah, something like that. And they that. were like, "We're who we're going to get?" and Dan's like, "I'll do it. Give me the mustache." Yeah. I mean, but he does. He's Dan Aykroyd is well, he's so prevalent. I mean, he permeates all of popular culture even still today. It's just really bizarre when he pops in. Um but that yeah, when we Back to We Are the World. I, yeah, I, I digress. Uh, so, all right. Um, well, our next uh, episode will actually be uh, very kid-friendly. We are going to tackle Disney in our next episode, um, which uh, is going to be really interesting. You've said that your list just came naturally and it was the easiest, the easiest list, list I've made. ever made. I am still struggling with this list. I've had 20 or 30 different uh, versions of it. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's going to be, I don't want to say the best of Disney because it's very, how do you, how do you rank? Well, we Disney? had to, we had to qualify it a little because Disney now owns Marvel and it also owns, you know, Lucasfilm and it right. owns the Muppets and it owns lots of other films that are, have nothing to do with right. animation or kid friendly fare. So yeah, we had to really narrow it down. Yeah. It's we, um, yeah. And we're, we're steering clear of the, the intellectual properties, Marvel Lucasfilm. I mean, this is going to be for me. I know specifically, I'm going to hit the animated films. Um, and I, I know that you probably have opened it up a little bit. Well, more, anima- so. I mean, animated films and, and, and the, theme, the major theme parks. Major theme park attractions. That works. Classic. Um, it, to me, it's classic. So there are classic Disney films, and I include Pixar as classics. Oh, I, I do. They're too. modern classics. Yeah, Pixar will be so, on my list. Even though, even though originally they were just distributed by Disney, but now Disney also owns right. Pixar. So I'll, I'll include Pixar and, and other classic animated films in classic parks. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to take anything that has the animation in it and is distributed by and produced by Disney, um, which is a little more broad, but but I mean it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna tackle any any uh, 
live action or any. I mean, Leia is now my favorite Disney princess, but Star Wars is not going to make a a a. a uh, it's not going to be present in my list of songs, but because we're calling it classic Disney. Yeah. Well. All right. Or not, not everything's not classic for you. Well, no, everything is a classic, but my list right now is starting to lean more toward uh, the last. 30 to 40 years. But that's still a classic. It, it is. When I when I say classic Disney, I don't mean like old classic. I mean like... Okay, the, you're not talking 20s I, I'm talking 40s. about when, when you think of Disney. Oh, okay. What do you think of? You think of The Little Mermaid. You think of Snow White. You think of uh, even, I would say, like um, Toy Story. I mean, those are the movies you think of okay. when you think classic Disney. True. So I'm saying classic in the sense that it's it's still in that really narrow realm where Walt started for his entertainment company, okay. not right. the other subsidiaries that it's grown to. Okay, I I have, well, I do have a couple right now, and the list can change, but right now I have a couple of obscure songs that I just feel don't get the recognition they deserve, and I have one, one that may very loosely fall into the parameters you've set, but I refuse to let it go. And, so. and by the way, yeah, we think that Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Lion King are new, but no, they're, they're old, No, Alan. they're not. We're yeah, old. I, they are classic yes, Disney. Yes, I realize. But, you know, Moana, you know, it is an, an incredible soundtrack Okay, I've well, never, so. never seen Moana. Once my kids were a certain age, Moana? I haven't seen Moana. Oh, you got to I didn't see, see Princess and the Frog. <sighs> I didn't Princess see... Princess and the Frog is, I would say, one of the greatest soundtracks well, if you're a jazz fan, especially, it's the second. Is it better than it's second the only Aristocats? To, it's better than the Aristocats. It's Jungle Book? Second only to the Jungle okay. Book. Okay. In terms of the jazzy vibe of it. Um, yeah, it, it's just, oh, Princess and the Frog is fantastic. But um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting show. If you are a Disney fan, you're going to love it no matter what we pick, I would assume, because Disney fans love Disney. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. it. It It'll be a lot of fun, and, you know, it, it's. You know, let us, uh, you know, bring out our, our more childish uh, sides and, and really my, have fun with nostalgia. So My wife is, is a huge Disney, classic Disney fan. Not uh, the movies, per se. I mean, she likes them, but the, the parks. I'll, well, who doesn't? And uh, to, the point, to the point that she actually, when she's cleaning the house, you know, she'll play. You can find on Spotify the actual instrumental park music oh, yeah. that's played. And yep. she listens to that while she's working around the house. Really? Yeah. No, I, hey, it makes sense. I mean, you know, the, whether it's the Tiki Room, the Pirates, the the Haunted Mansion, whether it's, I don't know if I'd listen to it, It's a Small World. That That is, no, the, she's not, that is the greatest she's not listening. No, those those are the songs that are played oh, on those attractions. attractions. No, it's like the music that they pump in when you're walking. Oh. You don't really even gotcha. realize because it's like subliminal. Okay. But they're always playing. Like, so you're just talking the scores, the, the instrumental scores. scores that, and, but, oh, the, the, okay. but Disney, it's not just like these scores. They've actually rearranged, right. yeah, yeah, all of the scores that make up the generic park oh, music. Yeah, no, I, and I won't be picking any of that. I might pick some attraction songs, like you mentioned. But she listens to that because it's wild. kind of good background music. It, it is. I, I mean, my family. Well, just in my youth, I mean, we hit Disney, Walt Disney World. Probably four or five times when I was young. And well, heck, I think the first time I ever went was with you yeah, when we went down and, to Florida. Right. And, and we yeah, were in high school. I've, I've taken my own kids uh, three times now. Um, it's been a while since I've been. But um, yeah, so Disney next week. So I hope you'll you'll tune in for that. Um, our sponsors, we want to give a shout out both to Jay Callahan Painting. Uh, they serve the greater Cleveland area. They're available for all of your painting needs. You can find them on Facebook, Jay Callahan Painting 
painting, and uh, also affordable entertainment live trivia, um, which again, you can find on Facebook. It is a group when you search for them on Facebook, you have to join the group um, in order to really have access. There's a reason for that because the trivia is actually played through Zoom uh, in part. And right about the time that uh, Affordable Entertainment started, uh, the, the live trivia nights, that was when Zoom kept getting... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Bombed. Uh, bombed. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of a way to say it. But, right. Um, so he made it a private group so that people couldn't, you know... That makes sense. ...crash yeah. it, right. I guess. But the problem is you can't take a public... You can't take a group marked private and then turn it to public. So it's it's a private group now like it or not. Um, but join the group and please do enjoy Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia. It's free to play uh, and it's a lot of fun and uh, every week the top top player uh, scores a $50 gift card. So uh, got nothing to lose. And don't forget our, our Etsy. Oh yeah, and Etsy once more. Uh, we talked about him at the top of the show. Please, uh, Lazar Beam Yarns, L-A-Z-A-R-B-E-A-M, Y-A-R-N-S, Lazar, Beam, Yards, one word, Yarns. Lazar, Beam, Yarns, one word. Uh, that's that's uh, Laura, Laura Lazaridis. She's, she's a listener who graciously uh, provided Dave and I with uh, a mixtape uh, face mask, which it, it's still, I'm, I'm blown away. It's, it's awesome. It's it cool, really is. Cool Thank you so much. So, and if you are one of our listeners and you're looking for face masks or, or replacements or additional face masks, again, uh, now through October 4th, um, if you enter the code GenX10, she'll give you 10% off of her Etsy store. So thank you again for that. Um, I don't know that I have anything else. I think we're done. Okay. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next Sunday. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But we will see you on the flip side.